Welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I'm Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yeah. How you doing? Well, I didn't set the recording the way I usually like. Nothing is different in the way it sounds, just in the uh, way it looks. And I don't know if I can change it mid... I don't know if you change... Uh, Horses midstream. I don't know if you change your display midstream. <laughs> uh, well, you can give it a try. I, I can't see any uh, the harm in it. Uh, uh, fuck it. Um, Better safe than sorry. Yeah, um, let's. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of um, changing horses, uh, this is the first episode that we have recorded since yeah. since the election. I'm sure listeners are like, since, man, these guys are surprisingly upbeat given yeah, no. the circumstances since the. Uh, since the, the scorpion bit the frog and said, what did you, what did you expect? You yeah. knew I was a racist, angry white country. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty rough. I, I'm, I'm very happy. I was telling uh, our guest this beforehand that I'm very happy that I am working and in school right now because it kind of allows me to just focus on the shit I have to do, but, it, and it feels really irresponsible, me, uh, irresponsible of me to have that attitude. But at the moment I'm not ready to process everything yet. Hey, yeah, I've been dealing with it in two ways. Uh, and then we will bring our guest in cause I definitely want to get his uh, point of view on this as well. Uh, two ways. One is exactly what you're doing. I've been burying myself in I've been very lucky to be very, very busy at work, uh, lately. Cause I'm essentially, well, starting money to hope this won't be the the thing anymore, but I'm essentially doing three jobs <laughs> at work, uh, in recent weeks. Um, and, uh, so that's been helpful. And the other thing I've been doing is what I maybe should have been doing, uh, uh, in my life, which is spending, paying more attention to, uh, you know, charities and activist causes and sure. things that we can do on our own, which brings us to, uh, oh, something yeah. that you, the listener, can do mm-hmm. uh for the rest of the month um anything that you purchase from our from our premium content uh all of our premium episodes all of our commentaries i guess technically the first 40 episodes yeah uh, sure. count to anything that you uh purchase from our premium content all those proceeds i guess except paypal's cut right, right yes except yes. paypal the cut the paypal takes which we can't do anything about but all the proceeds we won't we won't see any of the proceeds all the proceeds right. that we would have seen we will see uh, them come and go yeah well all of them will go to the freedom of the press foundation um tyler and i had a had a talk about uh he and i being you know we are on different sides of things politically generally, but uh, hey, if there's anything we can come together on, <laughs> but neither of us is happy about um, Donald Trump being uh, elected president. And we decided, you know, we were looking for what is this something that Donald Trump is, uh, is against that yeah. we are both can both get on the same page of being for. And, yeah. and Tyler jumped at the, uh, um, uh, the, the chance to do something for the freedom of the, of the press, which is already, I mean, uh, like this is, how he ran his campaign is already how he's behaving as the president elect in terms of, in, in terms of the press. And it's, um, it's shameful and, uh, disgusting. And we should definitely be, uh, fighting for the, for the right the ability of, uh, of a press that can, um, cover, uh, this, uh, atrocity, uh, with as much freedom as possible. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. Like, <laughs> Being a uh, conservative as I am, I'm naturally suspicious of the press, but not. There's a difference between being like suspicious, as we should be suspicious of any institution. Yeah, and, we should always be skeptical. Yeah, uh, skeptical. Let's say that. That's that's a better word. It's not quite <laughs> not quite as uh, angry. Um, 
but uh, but at the same time, just because and, and, and a lot of conservatives like are v- uh, very outspoken against uh, against the press. But at the same time, uh, you know, the solution to something like this is uh, more freedom, not less. And uh, during the primaries, um, uh, Donald Trump was talking about I, I don't remember exactly his, his vague phrasing, but it was something to the to the effect of like like beefing up uh, uh, libel laws. Uh, against like uh, right. newspapers and stuff that like say stuff against him, um, and it's like, oh, okay, so you want to try and make it so that everything counts as libel, so that you can sue them and shut them up. Uh, I don't like that uh, for a number of reasons. One, without giving any name, because I'm not officially supposed to know this, but this has been a burn my saddle, and I've been thinking about it for the last uh, couple weeks. Uh, a film critic friend of mine, uh, who wrote a review right. for a website. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't be any yeah, more specific. A critic friend of mine who wrote a review for a website, um, was sued because he wrote a negative review of, of a movie. And the filmmaker is a former lawyer who is still able to practice law and has nothing but time. So he sues this, uh, this website. They take the, the review down and yeah, and it just like it bothers me so yeah, that's much. That's just, the 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 idea of using the law as like a a, a cudgel. Is that the right? Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what um, you meant to say. Yeah, yeah. good. <laughs> using the law as like a cudgel to like shut people up that don't like you. No, thank you. I don't. I don't. I, I hate that. I think that's the worst. And so this is what I'm saying is the solution we should be looking forward, looking toward uh, for the next four years uh, at least the next two years until uh the um midterm elections and the two years after that is and always going forward is to take everything that uh upsets us and not just um spit it back into the uh the echo chamber and and bitch and grouse about it but actually uh do something uh, uh, about it, which means put your put your money where your mouth is, or put your uh, time or whatever you can, uh, and uh, where your mouth is, and uh, that's what that's what this uh, is a step towards doing. But uh, this is not going to be the end of uh, action for for me. I uh, already have put together you know ongoing plans to become regular donors to causes that I mm-hmm. believe in. Um, let's bring in our guest, who I know has. Um, plenty to say about this listener can you just feel like the energy just draining from the room the more we every time i talk about this with anybody like my energy level just plummets like because i'm just so i'm so discouraged but you know what we gotta do what's that not i mean to to borrow a catchphrase from our exiting president we gotta get fired up that's what we gotta do do something yeah, all this right. is what I'm talking about. Get fired up. Fired up, ready to go. Fired up, ready to go. I don't care for that at all. I do. <laughs> I'm all about it. Yeah. <laughs> all right, our guest is Battleship Retention. Hold on, let me see if I can get this right this time. Uh, editor at large. Did you miss it last time? <laughs> yes, I, I I referred to you as the editor-in-chief That's right. last yeah. time. Um, I'll work my way. Uh, this is true enough. Editor at large, Scott and I. Hello. Uh, Are you fired up? You ready to go? <laughs> I'm super angry all the time. That's similar to being fired up and ready to go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, we can get into it if you want, but I can barely start talking about it without getting intensely angry and expletive filled. Um, but it's probably the worst thing that's happened in my lifetime to this country. So I'm no. very pissed off about Hang it. Hang on. 
It was at one time. Well, I know you're uh, much younger than we are. You were you were, you were born in ninety four, eighty six. Okay, but I mean, Tyler and I were alive, uh, and I guess you were too. When uh, you know Ronald Reagan ignored the AIDS crisis, that's pretty rough. Okay, my that's... conscious lifetime. <laughs> there we go. Which like starts with George H W Bush. Oh, right, right. Who like you know he brought the wall down. Good for him. Sure. Yeah. Oh he, my. He, he puked on the uh, <laughs> the yeah. Japanese um, prime minister. Is that who it was? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Oh boy. Right on. Like, if you look back to like George H W Bush, oh boy, what a wonderful time in this country. Like, <laughs> That's in, how, in I, I was literally thinking about that, uh, and I want to, Tyler, you as a Republican, I want to get your point of view because I was like, when was the last time we had a Republican who wasn't a complete disaster? <laughs> like, even if I disagree with him, I still like respected, yeah. was able to respect him as president. And my first thought was, I guess George H W Bush, and I thought, but he did throw up on the Japanese <laughs> prime minister. But you could, that's you know. <laughs> He didn't, but it didn't cause an international incident yeah. or anything like that. You know, he didn't people, come like locked and loaded for that yeah. meeting. He's just right. like, just a couple more feet HW. He's like, you just wait. You just wait. It's like, yeah, you want another date that we'll live in, in infamy? Here we go. But this is what I'm saying is that uh, as time goes on, like you even see George W. Bush being his being seen differently now, oh, you yeah. know, um, and part of it is because uh, like, if they, you know, I guess we keep lowering the bar, <laughs> but I was thinking about like, there was a, uh, there, there was a poster, there was a place down the street from the video store I worked at in Chicago and there was a, uh, that sold posters and there was a poster that was just like, uh, it was just a poster of like dumb malapropisms that George W. Bush, um, had made, um, during his, at this point, only the first term of his presidency. And I was thinking about that post today and thinking that's so quaint. Oh yeah. <laughs> like Absolutely. the fact that he said like, you know, people put food on their families or whatever it was right. that he yeah, said. Yeah. Um, that's quaint. That's so, that's, that seems yeah. so inoffensive yeah. now. Uh, it's like we're we, watching something from like an 1800s election or something. Yeah. I mean, like let's that. not forget that he normalized torture and got us into a pointless war and crashed the economy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm I mean, during, his, during his first term, he was mostly just amusing, but, uh, yeah, I mean, no, the, um, uh, the, the, the Iraq war is definitely a, uh, uh, that's, that's, that will still be his yeah. legacy. Uh, and, and was the, there anybody the running this, this election that voted for it? Oh, there was <laughs> just making sure just wanted <laughs> to cut I, through the haze a little bit. Yeah. Uh, everything is terrible all the time forever. This is where my mind goes to the, the worst thing I'm mad all the time. Okay. I need to stop. Like I, uh, I like I need to, you want to talk, let's talk about school. That's what I do. It's exhausting. Uh, but I think the thing I get angry at the most mm. is not, uh, of course, you know, the people who voted for Donald Trump, you know, they, I'm baffled. Um, and I am angry at them, but I'm mostly angry at the people who just didn't vote like that. Yeah. The thing that, that a lot of people shared, I think Scott shared that, that graph showing Democrat and Republican votes for the last three elections. Right. And that the Republicans actually are getting fewer votes, but the Democrat, like there was just so low somewhat that was based on like the first night results. And as more ballots have been counted, they've each been going up to point out that Clinton has more votes than any president besides Obama has ever received. And that's partially due to just population inflation, you know, increasingly people are just going to get more votes. Um, But that the number of of roughly like 49% of eligible voters just didn't vote. Right. Yeah. Uh, And that's not registered voters. That's people that includes people who are eligible 
and aren't registered, right? Is that the? I think it's just registered. Oh, okay, I'm uh, not sure. Oh no, you might you might be right. Yeah, I think when I see eligible, I think yeah, because it's like 250 bother. million. There can't be that many people registered to vote. Uh, unfortunately, like it's something no, I know. we shouldn't have to laugh at that. But I, like, I agree. That's and I understand what you're saying, Tyler, as a as a Republican and being you know not exactly uh, thrilled at the prospect of a Hillary Clinton um, presidency either. But at least but the First Amendment wouldn't be threatened. This is what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> if even if you know, you can't get excited like I was to vote in, you know, the, our nation's first female president, you know, that mm-hmm. that's something that would excite. Even if that's not motivating, even if you're turned off by her, you know, um, insider career politician status sure. or whatever, the idea that not enough people were motivated to not vote in Donald Trump yeah. makes me, and I am, I have considered myself a patriot for my entire life, but I am, I feel so disconnected from my country. The fact that we didn't stand up as a big enough group to say no to this guy. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the thing that makes me the most angry uh, and, and frustrated. Well, and as much as I don't put a lot of stock in the, the whole like post-election breakdown that the Democrats didn't do enough or whatever, you know, obviously they got their message out there because more people did vote for Hillary Clinton nationwide. Mm-hmm. Um, but they could have better framed what Donald Trump presented beyond the fact that he was a scumbag, which everybody knew. Yeah. Um, they could have, you know, more framed that he was threatening the First Amendment, that he was threatening to, you know, throw all Muslims in jail. You know, it's there's like tons of policy things they could have gotten him more on. Yeah, that's and that's the thing is I see, there are a number of commentators, including Bill Maher, of all people, um, who were talking about that, like something that the Democrats do and specifically Democrats like, uh, in, in entertainment, like himself, um, that they have a history of framing Republicans as scumbags. Right. And so and when, then, and then when they actually long. get yeah. to one, they're like, no, 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 no. This one is really a scumbag. I know that we were talking about Mitt Romney, the most boy scout of any, uh, <laughs> boy scoutiest of, uh, any, uh, candidate. Uh, we said he was a scumbag, but, uh, but no, 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 this is the real one. And, uh, and there's a possible, uh, boy who cried wolf element that after a while people are like, I don't believe you anymore. Yeah. When, during the election I tweeted out, remember how pissed off we were at Mitt Romney for putting his dog on the car? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, he, uh, Mitt Romney only thought, uh, little of 47 percent of americans <laughs> yeah. donald trump doesn't like anyone except himself um <laughs> that's boy that's true uh but the other uh and i'm paraphrasing now some 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 uh, some other tweet uh but the uh, the other thing that is that i found interesting is the uh, someone compared um this to white people's oj simpson <laughs> basically like <laughs> oh yeah white voters they knew he was a bad guy they just wanted the victory right after, no. you know certain angry white voters after four years of uh, barack obama um, wanted the victory despite the fact that he's a bad guy. Yeah. Uh, going into uh, last Tuesday, uh, I found myself thinking, like, okay, so what's, what's the ideal situation for me? I was like, cause there isn't any good one for me, a Republican. So I was like, okay, how about a Congress of one party and a president of another? Ideally Hillary Clinton is president and then a Republican Congress. And then everything just stays the same for four years. How great would that be? I can live with that all day long. Um, and I know a lot of people talk about like Supreme Court. It's like, whatever. Like, I, I could, status quo sounds marvelous to me right now. I, I'm, even though I um, am very much left leaning, um, I love the idea of the Congress and the yeah, president yeah, being sure. ours. So that, that's American. But not when there's 
such obstructionism. That's that I, I'm not for. I'm not for that. Like, the, what do you think of the idea of um, Barack Obama just appointing Merrick Garland, which he has the right, the power to do? There's been some debate about that, uh, about whether or not he has the power yeah. to do it. Let's yeah. say he does. Right, but are, assuming he does, for the sake of argument, um, I'm not thrilled with it personally. But I'm against it in in theory, de- no. definitely, because I've I'm, I've always. Uh, people who listen to this podcast know that as much as I have there are many things about Barack Obama that I support, I've always been uh, turned off by his use of executive orders, which he's, which I was turned off when was George a- W. Bush did it. And Barack Obama does it even more. And I, yeah. and I don't like that. I feel like that's against the checks and balances. Uh, and so I am in theory against um, the idea of him just forcing a Supreme court nominee. If he has, if he has the, the power to do so, but when the, when they won't even when do they've it. been so obstructionist <laughs> yeah. for so long it's like what is he even supposed to do maybe that yeah. maybe if he did that if he can if he did that yeah. maybe it would set the precedent of this is where obstructionism gets you so maybe try to play ball next time well but and that's the thing is if you want to look at it another way the country by electing overwhelmingly in 2014 uh like you know maryland and illinois had republican governors like, oh, okay yeah. and then like the Senate went over, like, went so much more to the Republicans than people expected, and then they held the House, of course. And so, I look at that and I think, like, okay, I may not, I may may not like, I like, I'm fine with gridlock. I don't like the idea of obstructionism, but when the country votes that much in favor of the Republicans, like, I guess people do want obstructionism. Like, if if they want, like, if they want the. They can't impeach the president. So if the if the public wants the president stopped, then I guess this is how they do it. You know what I mean? And for me, oddly enough, executive orders is like obviously with every election there's a lot of big issues. Executive orders was the big issue for me in this election because I looked at every I looked at the slate on both sides. I was like Donald Trump will absolutely use it. I think Hillary would have used it. Yeah. I think Bernie would have used it. And then I got to Ted Cruz, who there's a lot of stuff I don't like about him, but I don't think he would have done it. I, I don't think, I think it would have been think very, so. I think he would have. I think, I, don't I, think, I so. think there's that, um, uh, oh, I, I want to say I'm, uh, paraphrasing PJ O'Rourke here, who d- described mm-hmm. the presidency as like a leather glove. Mm-hmm. You know, the office of president is, is a leather, leather glove. When you, yeah. if you put a, a bigger hand into it, yeah. it will, reshape itself to fit that hand but it'll yeah. never go back to what it was so i don't know that i trust any i feel well, like once that uh the toothpaste is out of the tube to ooh. use other metaphors yeah. i don't know oh uh, my gosh and if you're using that leather glove to squeeze that toothpaste <laughs> out of the tube you're in bad shape well, now, now i'm getting turned on um, <laughs> all right is that a good place to say we that's fine enough the, well, yeah. okay election. so here's here's what i will say just a little bit of uh, of of i don't know positivity here uh so i went into my class uh, the day after the election because of course there's no better time to be going to UCLA and be a conservative (laughs) than in the midst of the election of Donald Trump (laughs) but uh, and the people in my in my cohort all of whom are were in fact born uh, in 1993 um, (laughs) the uh, they know where I stand politically and it's helpful that they also know that I abhor Donald Trump so that's a big help uh, yeah. but I went in with my guard up. I was like, okay, here we go. Like I'm going to, people are, it's like, I feel like people are probably going to blame me somehow. Uh, and class went 
by just fine. Everything was fine. And then afterwards, um, I was leaving and like a group of, of my fellow students were standing outside and they, they said, Hey Tyler, we have some questions for him. Like, here we go. (laughs) And we proceeded to have 90 minutes of really open, curious, um, nuanced political discussion. And it really, I felt so encouraged afterwards. Now that went away when I went to class the next day. Uh, and you were pelted with eggs. <laughs> uh, I, I found myself getting frustrated with the way people were talking about middle America. Um, because part of me is like, maybe you calling them a cesspool is why they're not super thrilled to vote for your person. Yeah, that's a, that's um, a bummer. And so, but, but that first day and that 90 minute conversation was so meaningful to me. And it made me think that like, you know, uh, we can be very despairing and we have, I think plenty of reason to, to be that, but on an end, like you're talking about with yourself, David, on an individual level, you can give to charities and what's more, you can talk to people that agree with you, that don't agree with you and actually listen to them. Because here's the thing, very few people I know, and I do know some people, I'm on, I'm related to some people that voted for Donald Trump very reluctantly. They're not happy with this. There's like, yeah, all right, fine. They're happy. It's over. And they're, they're happy that quote unquote, their guy got in, but he wasn't their guy. They don't like him. Mm-hmm. And so like, this can be an opportunity on an individual uh, social basis to find common ground. Like, cause a lot of, like a lot of my fellow students suddenly didn't like the idea uh, of, cause they didn't have, a, they didn't have a lot of problems with uh, Barack Obama's executive orders until now, yeah. you know, and um, uh, I was able to use my, uh, my one ring uh, metaphor <laughs> where, you know, Boromir can have uh, can use it uh, for all the good he wants. But in the end, and then this one guy's like, he goes, Denethor is coming. I was like, yes, absolutely. Denethor is coming. Um, uh, that's funny. I had a so. similar experience here. I went to a, uh, party the other night that was a very, you know, bougie, uh, you know, Hollywood liberal type of, you know, sure. rooftop wine, cheese plates, that sort of <laughs> that type of party. No. And I was like, and it was the Saturday after the election. I was like, this is going to be, everyone's just going to be so it's this is going to be the echo chamber personified yeah. and it wasn't mostly it was like a, a lot of like uh newly discovered sympathy for why like trying to figure out why so many working class whites might be so angry something that yeah. that we probably had been dismissive of yeah. in the past well because statistically some of the people that voted for donald trump undoubtedly voted for barack obama in 2012 and so what happened Well, kanye west said he would have voted for (laughs) well that's enough for me you know what i can i change my vote um but uh and so i feel like there there is this weird shock that everybody's in and because when the campaign's going you're very much like okay we gotta i don't have time to listen to the other side i've got to do my thing and now that we're all here at a place we never thought we would be uh it's an opportunity to either as the three of us are, we, we are all uh, upset and as number of people are, but once that dissipates a little bit, what's left, you know, we have to be proactive at some point. And I think one-on-one conversations and, and really trying to listen to people and try to see how this could happen and without simply saying, well, everyone's racist problem solved. I'm not, there we go. I'm the best. Um, that's not helpful at all. Everyone is racist though. Well, I'm not, yeah, no, I vote for Gary Johnson. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I'm saying everyone is racist. Sure. Every person. I saw a crash. I get it. Um, <laughs> All right. Um, now, I did you have had something, something else at the top because let's not let's not swerve directly into our advertisements <laughs> right now. <laughs> let's give our sponsors a buffer. Yeah. Uh, you're welcome, movie. Uh, so, OK. This has been bothering me for uh, about a week and a half. I saw this image. There's a movie coming out called The Darkest Hour. Does that sound familiar to either of you? Nope. It's about Winston Churchill. There he is. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know who that is? Uh, no, I don't. That's Gary Oldman. Huh. Now, here's the thing. I can live with thinner actors patting themselves out for comedy. It's silly. I get it. Okay. You know? But when you do it for, for a drama, there's an element to me that, okay, I'm not going to say, you know, like blackface or anything like that, but it's just like, there are overweight actors that can play Winston Churchill. You don't have to pat out an acceptable, a quote unquote, visually acceptable actor to do this. It bothers me so much. This is, I mean, you're making exactly the same argument as people who are upset at Matt Bomer playing a trans character or whatever are making. Like there are, there are people out there who could, I feel like there's a difference there. I'm just going to voice that for any listeners who are like, there's probably a difference there. There there undoubtedly there is, but at the same time, I'm sure to a matter of degrees, but it is the same argument. It is basically the same argument. Like I could see I the studio. I could see the studio much uh, rather. Than, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not gonna let it go. What do you mean? <laughs> How do you not know about that? Uh, because trans identity is a lot deeper than fat identity. Okay, that, and that's why I said to a matter of degrees. Is that you're you're you're, okay. you're making the same point I am. That yes, All it's right, a matter I, of degrees, but it is the same argument. All right. Well, I, I think it's enough degrees that it's a different argument. <laughs> All right. I, I, don't, I don't know how that's possible. <laughs> Eventually you move enough degrees from something that you're somewhere else. Not if, if we're taking the idea of degrees, right? If you have the same center point, right? Right? Are we talking like a circle or a yes, line? Like a circle, right? Imagine well, a circle. Well, after a while, aren't you facing the other direction? That's, that's where I'm coming from. Let, okay, let's talk about a degrees in terms of heat then, okay. right? Oh, boy. Right? If I've got my... It's getting hot in here. Uh, my, my oven, right? Okay. I want to preheat it to oh you know i'm not i don't this isn't something i need to preheat it to 225 okay right that's that's the 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 fat actor argument right okay if i'm but if the the trans actor argument which is a much as you're saying deeper or in this case a much hotter so uh, it's incendiary dude. <laughs> yeah um this is a much hotter take uh, it's a much hotter button i'm going all the way up to 450 500 to sure. for that sure. so it's it might be a great number of degrees apart yeah but it has the same center. It's all on the same dial. That's exactly That's what, what I'm saying. saying. It's on the same dial. All right, I'll allow it. Um, <laughs> but my argument's not with you. It's with Scott. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you can allow it all you want. <laughs> I know, but there are two hosts of this show, and we're both on board here. Um, but uh, So I, I, uh, okay, I, I so win. I, I won you over then. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, until I hear a snappy visual metaphor like I, like I laid out... <laughs> You're not going to convince anybody. Visual of heat, yes. You know what I should say? I emailed David this beforehand, and he (laughs) had time to work that out. So I challenge you to come up with something so quickly. Um, So, okay, my point is, and and for some reason it just... Because uh, I don't remember what what company puts this out, but over the last 16 years there have been... This is the third Winston Churchill movie. There was... 
The Gathering Storm, which featured Albert Finney. Okay. There was Into the Storm, which featured uh, tornado. Bren- Brendan Gleeson going into a tornado. Um, no, there was a tornado movie, wasn't there? It? was, yes. Into the Storm. I yeah. think it's called Into the Storm, but I think there's this other one called uh, Into the Storm, yes. What storm's um, going on? Um, and so, uh, and this one is called uh, Dark- Stormy Weathers. Storm, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it stars Peter Gallagher. As, uh, Wait, no, you said it was called Dark and Stormy. Dark and Stormy, that's right. Uh, a Dark and Stormy yeah, Night the featuring... Ru- the rum drink. What? <laughs> a Dark and Stormy is a... What is that? It's a rum and uh, ginger beer. Is that right? Dark and Stormy? I don't know. You're asking the wrong person. Um, I get an old-fashioned. Yeah. I like uh, the old-fashioned. <laughs> oh, boy. This is a crazy episode. Um, but no, what I, it's... Okay, so... I just don't know how Scott is just letting that hang. Like, I've clearly won the argument. He's not even, like, trying to combat it. I'm not well-versed in trans issues or trans politics. I just have met and listened to enough trans people that I feel like there's a difference between someone who can lose weight and someone who is a trans person. All right, you made a point. That right. someone, but, you know, I mean... I, I, yeah, you made, you made a point that, that a, a person who is overweight and, I don't know, for some reason wants to lose weight, for whatever reason, I'm not saying for some reason, I know there are plenty of reasons, uh, for whatever reason <laughs> wants to lose weight, that is uh, on the table for them, whereas right. a person who is the gender that they are, there's no... That uh, is... Yeah. All right, yeah. you, you, you make a good point. Uh, my only Snappy point was... enough for you, Tyler? <laughs> now, what I'm hearing is you say, put down the sandwich, fatty. That's what I heard from you just now. No, I'm saying they can if they want to. <laughs> Unless they have a glandular problem, um, but it's fine. Uh, it's and, but the, and, yeah. The basic the basic argument though is that someone yeah uh, they can theoretically change. Uh, it might be remarkably difficult, um, but yes. But they your can, argument, what I'm saying, which is which is the same as yeah. the trans argument, but different in the way that Scott sure, has sure. finally effectively stepped up and uh, <laughs> argued. Uh, David, I I it, think this is a victory for you. You pushed him to a place where he finally could uh, yeah, speak this up. Is you, the you got together. We're talking about. You got the birth certificate, okay? <laughs> okay. Good. Here we go. Um, um, uh, yeah, but you're, you're you're saying that there are actors who look more like Winston Churchill yeah. and can play him. Well, and, like and, on Drunk History, when Louis Anderson played Winston Churchill, that's kind of amazing. <laughs> uh, and I will say that, like you know, in the King's Speech, like Timothy Spall played him, and I know that on that show, The Crown on Netflix, I believe uh, John Lithgow is playing him, and so. You know, when I look at that image that I just showed you guys, it is striking. It's just like, well, that certainly doesn't look like Gary Oldman. It's like, that's exciting. Except now the conversation, on top of all the other things I'm saying, the conversation then becomes, wow, what an amazing makeup job that they made this uh, acceptable looking actor into this fat, disgusting man. Uh, Thank God we didn't have to cast one of those. Um, And for some reason, it just bothers me so much uh, because... We were talking about this in one of my classes, oddly enough, is that there aren't actually, I know it sounds strange, you know, when we talk about like leading roles and the various demographics of people that don't really get cast in leading roles, um, overweight people by and large, unless, unless we're all going to make fun of how overweight they are. <laughs> um, although honestly, I'm one of the things I've been very excited about with uh, Melissa McCarthy is how much she has managed to sidestep that, like yeah. her her characters are very seldom about that. Um, and I think the same thing with Jan- with John Candy, uh, early on, but, um, 
But at the same time, there are very few leading roles. And so if I'm a British actor and I'm overweight, I'm like, it's only a matter of time. <laughs> we all know I'm going to play. We all know I'm going to play Winston, Winston Churchill eventually. Uh, and then, you know, and Gary Oldman's a wonderful actor. There's no question that he can pull it off. But at the same time, it's like, you know, on top of everything else, if I watch this thing, I'm going to be taken out of it. And I'm just going to be thinking like, and I think the makeup will probably give more well, I was going to say, wait, uh, <laughs> it will, I'll, say, I'll say, give more credibility to his performance, which again is going to be great. I have no doubt, but there'll be people that think like, Oh my gosh, look at that transformation. Like, well, the physical transformation isn't completely his, it's the makeup departments. Uh, as opposed to when I saw the gathering storm with Albert Finney, uh, I just was watching Winston Churchill. I wasn't watching an actor in makeup, uh, in, in a fat suit playing Winston Churchill. Like, I was, I was able to get more into it, but because there's this little bit of stunt casting and they're depriving an actor who could probably play the role in a more natural way. Um, now like it's, it's taking me out of it. I don't know. It's a, it's something that really bothered me. No, I do agree with you. And I also am against the general trend of people needing to look like the people they're playing. Yeah. It's like, you know, when, uh, Hopkins played Nixon. Absolutely. Okay. Throw a little grease in his hair and that's the end of it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's this new movie called Gold, comes out around oh, yeah. December. Where oh, which one is that? Matthew McConaughey has gone undergone a great transformation. He's wearing oh, a balding that. cap. He's got fake teeth in to make his teeth more crooked, and right. he's gained a bunch of weight. Yeah. And now here's the thing: I looked at the movie is based on a true story, but they've changed everything about like <laughs> they they've ch- changed like the real guy was. Uh, Canadian, not this guy's supposed to be from Nevada. They totally changed the name. The name of the mining, mining company. They changed. They changed. They changed so much about it that he's not playing right. The yeah. real like, and also the real guy. If you look him up, doesn't look like this. <laughs> yeah. So I don't like. Matthew McConaughey just decided that he needed. I was like, uh, I was reminded of uh, Lawrence Olivier's uh, uh, words to Dustin Hoffman. Why not try acting? Yeah, uh, yeah. It's. Yeah. Uh, Matthew McConaughey has gone around the bend, by the way. Has he? I mean, just, we never talked uh, on the movie journal, because I forgot that I saw it, because I didn't like it so much. We never talked about Free State of Jones Ugh. on the movie journal. No, thank uh, you. I hated it, and there is something like, Matthew McConaughey just, like, he's, he, yo, he started out like Lone Star. He was great, right? Yeah. And then he started to suck because he started to do Sahara and Fool's Gold and Ten, sure. to, to, Ten Ways to Lose Your Lover, or whatever that yeah. one's called. Um, what is the name of that movie? How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days. How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days. <laughs> um, uh, and then he, and then like, what, I guess like five years ago, four or five years ago, he started to get good again. And everyone was like, yeah. look, Matthew McConaughey's good again. And now I think he's been inhaling way too much of his own bullshit. And now he is just he's such he's he's doing the scenery chewing but when he was scenery chewing in like rain of fire and it was hammy and fun Damn it right. was great but now he's scenery chewing in the way that he thinks is great acting well and he's being uh, cast and it's it's laughable there's there's an element to him that's just like oh no no don't cast him as earnest i saw time to kill and free state of jones is earnest matthew mcconaughey and it does not well, suit him let me pitch you this okay remake 
Avernus goes to camp. Now we're talking. <laughs> With you know what? Hey, is Ernest. <laughs> it's the Ernest that you're like, I don't want my kids hanging around him. <laughs> um, All but, right. Uh, um, let's pay some bills. Absolutely. Okay. So thank you, everybody, for getting uh, through all of that. And now the moment you've been waiting for. <laughs> uh, this episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch. It. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $5.99 a month. Plus, when you use the mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. All right. Now, uh, a couple big announcements. Mubi has kicked off their retrospective of the Filipino director, Lav Diaz. Uh, right now, you can watch uh, uh, Jeremias, uh, book one, uh, The Legend of the Lizard Princess, which is about uh, a modern-day Jeremiah, a man struggling against the corruption and troubles endemic to Philippine society. So also... And here's why, here's why I find that interesting, is that Jeremiah is my favorite book of the Bible, and so I'm actually excited to see this. Uh, okay. Also, Mubi has its first ever U.S. theatrical release. Uh, starting Friday, November 25th, Mubi is releasing Baden Baden, the debut feature of French filmmaker uh, Rachel Lang, or Rochelle, probably, Lang? Lang? Who's to say? Who knows? Uh, the film will be opening in New York at the Anthology Film Archives in Los Angeles at the Arena Cine Lounge. After its week-long theatrical run, it will be available at Mubi. For more information uh, on this marvelous film, you you can uh, just go to Baden Baden Film. That's B A D E N twice Film dot com. Uh, but here's the thing: if you're interested in the film but you don't live in Los Angeles or New York, you can wait because it's it's after about a week. It'll be at Mubi, and you can get Mubi free for one month. Just go to Mubi.com, that's M-U-B-I.com, slash Battleship to redeem now. Uh, and I want to tell you real quick about tweakedaudio.com uh, earbuds, which uh, uh, are professional quality earbuds uh, in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. Tyler's a big fan. Uh, Scott probably has a pair. Um, and uh, they're available for a low, low price over at tweakedaudio.com. Uh, but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. At long last, let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. Uh, this is our annual AFI Fest wrap-up episode. Um, and uh, this was uh, an odd AFI Fest being... Just a, a few days after after the election. Yep. Um, it kind of felt like, you know, when you have a bad cold and you can't taste food as well. That's kind of <laughs> a I great felt. way to put it. <laughs> That's kind of how it's like. Even when I was seeing good movies, I was like, oh, I, don't know, I don't know if I'm really into this. Yeah. That's how it felt for like 
day it's been uh hard for me to cut to come through and, and see some good movies last night i started rewatching uh uncle boon me again uh uh because i was like i need to watch something i know that i love um but uh luckily there were some movies at afi fest that i saw that i really enjoyed and luckily i also saw a lot of these before the election uh thanks to you know uh, press screenings and, and such so um we're gonna go we, uh, we're just gonna go uh alphabetically the stuff that um scott and i uh saw um and we'll also mention as we pass through the uh the cinema legacy uh, screenings, yeah. uh, which is the category of older films. So there will be at least one film that Tyler has seen. Hey, all right. Even though none of us actually <laughs> saw it at the festival, so we won't talk about it at length, but just to, just to mention it. But let's um, – now, Scott, you're going to be dominating this because you've seen far more of these than, now. I, than I have. Um, so let's start uh, – that's why I uh, uh, am going to defer to your alphabetization where you put numerals uh, before um, – You put them after the alphabet? Uh, I normally would put the like the first movie we're going to talk about is 20th Century Women. Right, I so. would put that in the T's for because that's how you that's spell just, 20th. That's is just it a sociopath? But is it spelled out or is it no? It's a number. number. It's a number. Oh, that's insane. But that's yeah. how you spell that number. Sure, but the number isn't spelled. Yeah, it's a whole different character, a whole different symbol. Yeah, well, I would put it in the T's. If you were trying um, to teach someone the English language, you would completely screw them up. <laughs> <laughs> but they already know numbers. <laughs> numbers are. <laughs> Number like n- numbers is the, the most a, a lot of ling- people who speak different languages use the same numbers. Math is universal. Yeah, well, yeah. The language of film is universal. Landmark theaters. Oh right, I bumpers forgot. in the nineties and early two thousands taught us that. Yeah, Frank Whaley. Frank Whaley. Thanks. <laughs> That's a different one. <laughs> yeah, but okay. you remember the the whole language of film? Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, what was it? Uh, oh, well, I'll think of it. Parkadus Films is universal. Eglo, Cotavoa, Sagay. The language of film is universal. There are more, but I. I, I uh, I'm surprised you. Maybe you would be good at teaching people languages. Yeah. I just, well, apparently I just have to watch the same bumper <laughs> literally hundreds of times a year for five years. That's about right. Um, at landmark theaters. Uh, yeah, I don't go to as many landmarks. Well, there's only. There's only the one. No, there's three. Because there's, there's the, the landmark, landmark. There's the new art. New art. Oh, that's right. And there's the regent, which nobody goes to. But it is a very good theater, actually. Where is the region? It's in Westwood. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've uh, I've been there. I have been there. Um, yeah, but uh, but none of those like uh, anything that plays those uh, except for the new art. There's usually a theater closer to me playing those movies. Right. Uh, whereas in St. Louis, the pretty much the almost the only art house uh, game in town was the landmark, which you had uh, the Plaza Frontenac, the Tivoli, Tivoli and right. for a time, the high point, the high point is no longer a landmark theater. Yeah. It was um, the same in Boston. There was the Kendall square, which you had to get off the train and then walk like a mile, which in the winter just sucked. <laughs> and there's <laughs> right. nothing around. So the wind just coming right at your face and, but I love movies enough that I took that walk at least once a week. But that's and in Chicago we had the one that was at the mall. I can't remember what it was called now. Uh, I do not remember the one. Yeah, but that I, was, I know the theater, but I don't remember. But what that it was, was like on the red line. It was like or brown line. Maybe it was like two or three stops south and around the corner. So yeah. it was really easy. So we were there all the time. Webster Place was a little rough though. Um, uh, but that was a that's a, a mainstream theater. Right? It was yeah, but yeah. at the same time it was only slightly further than uh, than. Uh, facets so like mm-hmm. that so facets. either way if you had to go on if you wanted to get to facets like you'd have to brave some 
shitty weather. Yeah. As we it's, did for, uh, uh, for Verkmeister harmonies. Verkmeister harmonies. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was, uh, the late, uh, cold, windy December evening. Went to the facets Cinematheque, which is not a particularly comfortable theater to see movies in, but I saw some great stuff there. Uh, but I was going to say in St. Louis, the other game, the non, landmark art house place was the chase park plaza which was a super fancy like theater in a hotel that had a weird mix it had like five screens and it would show like three mainstream releases and then it would have like that's where i saw like chuck and buck oh i saw i saw like uh but i'm a cheerleader i saw uh edge of 17 not the edge of 17 the new movie that's out this week but edge of 17 the gay coming of age movie from 1999 uh anyway reminiscences but i will say we are way off topic <laughs> I, uh so on top of everything else another thing that's screwing up my mood is that there was a death in my family and i had to go back to missouri I'm and sorry. thank you um but you know what i'll say this i'm sorry Gra- for the death gra- gra- grandma you dodged it like good for you <laughs> uh and so um yeah she's kicking it with leonard cohen right now yeah, exactly I think that's the same way people yeah. talk about leonard cohen yeah. <laughs> i, I think, think one of his friends even said he knew when to leave a party <laughs> uh but um i've been listening to leonard cohen a lot this week it's been, i have as it's well it's been helpful yeah because you know david i've been putting together my fall playlist as i'm sure you yes have as well. i know we got to get get to that uh, yeah he'll definitely be on my yeah, fall playlist as well um, uh but yeah i mean i feel like we should I mean, he's not a movie guy. We should do a an episode someday well, soon the, on Leonard Cohen. Well, he did the whole score for uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. McCabe and Mrs. Miller. But I also know who Leonard Cohen is because of movie. Well, I think a lot of people who are maybe a little bit older than us know um, him first from, from Pump of the Volume because uh, oh, yeah, yeah. everybody knows. His That's use. right. But everybody knows is also used repeatedly in Adam Agoyan's film Exotica hmm. because it's a film that one of the uh, strippers dances to. But hmm. uh, And that was... Which was probably the second film that I saw that brought me to Leonard Cohen. But the film that brought me to Leonard Cohen was Natural Born Killers, which features three different Leonard Cohen songs. Only two of them are on the soundtrack album. Oh, okay. Um, but huh. uh, that's weird. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I found reason to be in uh, Springfield, Missouri, uh, last weekend, and uh, sure enough, I drove past the Campbell Sixteen, which is now an empty shell. Uh, but in a matter of time, I don't know when, but it is going to be an Alamo draft house and it will be the biggest one in the country. So I'm, uh, I'm You'll excited to, to get to go will it be back there. before we get one here. Yeah. Uh, doubtful. Doubtful. Okay. Cause aren't we getting one downtown? They keep kicking the can on that one. So it might be. Okay. Maybe. Cause I, I, I've never been to, to, you know, um, fantastic fest or, uh, God forbid, but numathon, uh, the, for me, the jury's still out on Alamo draft houses. Like, it seems like they got good taste. They're certainly their distribution wing. I'm a big fan of, they've sure. got a lot of awesome stuff, but the very idea of trying to watch a movie next to someone eating their like Buffalo chicken sandwich or whatever, it uh, seems it turns me off. Oh, it just seems, you wait until they deliver the checks and ask if anybody wants anything else at the end of the movie. Yeah. Usually it, at the climax of the movie. It seems yeah, like the exact opposite of what they would I know, do based right. on oh, their philosophy. Yeah, but no texting. Yeah. <laughs> no texting, but you can suck the barbecue sauce off your fingers. <laughs> and chat it up with the waitress. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. Let's actually talk about AFI All right. Fest, and let's talk about uh, 20th Century Women. Or do you have any overall thoughts first on this year's AFI Fest? I think you kind of put it well. Okay. I, the movies were quite good on the whole, uh, but it was hard to think about them. Right. <laughs> um, and I will unfortunately be starting with a movie that I didn't like as much as a lot of other people are. Uh, I really liked Mike Mills' last film, Beginners. And based on the word of 20th Century Woman, I was really excited about it and how many great actresses they had involved. Plus Billy Crudup, who's like, 
enjoying a hell of a renaissance right now. He's in so many good things. He's just in, what the hell else did I just see him in? Ah, hell. Anyway, he was in Spotlight last year. Yeah, but he was just in something like a few weeks ago that I saw, and it was good in that, too. But anyway, he's great in the movie. Greta Gerwig's good in the movie. Annette Bening, pretty good. Uh, But the movie is all constructed, despite the title, around this boy's coming-of-age story, and all the damn women do is talk about this kid and how they're trying to raise him and make these like really grand pronouncements about coming-of-age and about themselves and... It seems like Mike Mills wanted to get all his notes about the characters into the screenplay in some fashion, which is super annoying. Uh, And it has some really good moments, but on the whole, it's like a lot of theme packed into not a lot of plot. So So you're saying that this film about women does not pass the Bechdel test because they're all talking about this guy. Super barely. Like most of their conversations about the kid. Every now and again, they'll talk about, you know, uh, women's rights or some hot topic. (laughs) No, honestly, it is. It takes place in 79 and it keeps reminding you of what era it's taking place in. Um, See, this is, I think last time we were on, you were on the show, uh, Scott, uh, we were talking about the issues, the the type of films on, on which you and I are simpatico, I think is what I use. Yeah. And there are also films where we are very different. <laughs> this sounds like a movie that you didn't like very much, but the description makes me think I might like this movie. I went in thinking I would, I would love it because it, I thought it would be more about the women, but uh, the kid's kind of a drip and they keep talking about him. I like the idea of these women like walking out of apocalypse now and saying like, so my boss spanked me on the ass the other day <laughs> and just like everything that says 1979. <laughs> um, uh, but the other Billy Curtis movie you saw, we'll be talking about a little later. Uh, um, ah, yes. Now I remember. Uh, do you have, you have a list in front of you? So I don't have to keep announcing the films we're talking about. Oh yeah. Uh, next is this movie album, which is from, uh, some damn European country, uh, like Finland or one of those places where they have peace in the world. Uh, <laughs> it's about this couple who is adopting a kid and going way out of their way to make it seem as though the kid is actually theirs, which might be some local cultural thing where people are very proud of, having natural born kids or something because they don't provide any context for why they're going through all this effort. Uh, but it's a very dry comedy that is in parts quite funny and in parts even kind of, uh, Tati esque, uh, in terms of the setups and stuff. Hmm. But for the most part, it's, it actually it has two like completely laugh out loud moments where I could not stop laughing. Uh, but it's, too few and far between and the central motivations were i mean maybe it's just that i'm a dumb american but it was a little too vague for me and not inspired enough there's a couple of really funny characters who come along there's a police captain who mostly just talks to the couple about his mistress and about his mortgage and about everything to do not with his job uh, which is very amusing and uh the scene that really got me laughing out loud is they have like this five minute setup of the couple talking to some adoption officer. And then out of nowhere, this chicken just (laughs) flies up in the middle of the screen that had clearly been there for the entire scene. Uh, And so there's moments like that, but on, on the whole, I I don't think it'll get distribution and nobody needs to worry about it. The country of origin is Turkey. Ah, yes. Not one I tend to get confused with Finland. (laughs) No. Ironic that there was a chicken in this scene. (laughs) (laughs) And not a place where there's a lot of peace in the world, so I don't know why I thought that. (laughs) Uh, What's next? No time. This is no time to drink your water. Uh, Unfortunately, it was time. Uh, Next is another disappointment, unfortunately. Uh, I adored Sophia Takao's 2011 film Green. I wrote about it for the website. It's one of the few interviews I've done for the site because I loved it so much. Um... And this is another film that's kind of about jealousy. It's about these two women who are both actresses, one of whom her career is kind of on the ascent. Wait, Uh, did you say the name of the movie yet? Always Shine. Always Shine. Always 
Chime. Um, and so one of the actresses, her career is kind of on the ascent. The other is still quite struggling and it deals with kind of the competitiveness that erupts between two people and very specifically two women who find themselves in that situation. The one who's not doing as well is a very aggressive personality type in a way that seems to turn off a lot of the men around her. Um, whereas the one who's more successful is a little bit more like passive and doe eyed. And so it gets in that kind of duality of femininity, but it's really on the nose about that. And, uh, a lot of the sporting performances, they're just like parading through a series of drippy men for us to be like, these guys don't get it. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but also it's just so ripping off a lot of stuff that Ingmar Bergman was doing in the sixties, like really blatantly ripping off persona and not to, I think as productive an end. Um, so yeah, between it's just kind of, uh, on the noseness about femininity and about professional ambition and all that. And it's uh direct debt to one of my favorite directors. I, I just thought it was kind of a letdown from, like I said, green was an amazing film about jealousy, but this is a, a little less inspired, a little less erratic and a little bit more kind of fitting in a predictable kind of psychological thriller mode. Um, but it's pretty solid. All right, we're moving on to uh, one we said we mentioned the Cinema Legacy movies that we'd seen, even though you didn't see it here. You insisted I put this on the list, even though I haven't seen it in about eight years. <laughs> so uh, they showed Otto Preminger's uh, Carmen Jones. Yeah. But this was part of the, the, the three sort of... Uh, uh, tribute to women kind of thing. Yeah, because it was a tribute to... Because they did... Uh, um, they had Isabel Huppert and Annette Benning for like live yes. tributes, but there were three. If you look at if, if you were in Los Angeles and you see the like uh, telephone pole, review column, street lamp uh, posters and the and the the bumpers. Oh yeah, and tip of the hat to AFI for not having the exact same bumper before every movie. They yeah, had, they like, rotated some that, at least three. Uh, yeah, it was three because the three women were okay. Dorothy Dandridge, uh, yeah, which, Carmen Jones, right? Yeah, um, uh, Anna May Wong. Yeah, uh, they showed Piccadilly. And uh, now I'm drawing a blank on who the third one was. Uh, well, it was Ida Lupino. Ida Lupino, but right. She, I can't remember if she's even in The Hitchhiker, but, it, but she, she directed, directed it. Um, yeah. So those are the three. And so they had different bumpers, which, yeah, that's the one thing about film festivals is like two movies in. I'm yeah. like, I'm so sick of this. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I also kind of hate that they just spotlighted old movies in the bumpers where the festival is mostly new movies. It's kind of like not very representative. I don't know. Kind of bothers me. I guess I see what you're saying, but I like, um, I like that there were... Uh, I felt like the older movies had gone away from AFI Fest, not entirely, but there were a few of them, fewer of them the last couple of years. And there were, okay. there were a bunch this yeah, year. Yeah, there were a lot. Um, including Citizen Kane, which were, uh, <laughs> which they showed, um, See, you see all we got out of Carmen Jones there? That was great. No, I, why I, I wanted it on the... I did just want to say about Carmen Jones, this is not very good. No, I like Otto Preminger. But <laughs> yeah, I do too. It's a, a like modernization of the opera Carmen, and they like put lyrics to... Mm-hmm. Put modern lyrics to the opera. And oh, interesting. It, you think so. Yeah. <laughs> but it's very just kind of flat. Uh, it's not very interesting of a movie. That is uh, not a word I usually would associate with Otto Preminger. That's exactly. A, that's odd. But uh, Citizen Kane was uh, shown with... Uh, it was a, there was a discussion after they called a master class. Yeah. With, uh, which is the hot new buzzword these days. Master class? Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's using it. Yeah. Really? There's, yeah. uh, there's like on Facebook, I keep seeing advertisements for like, oh, here's a, like they'll get these admittedly masters to like yeah. teach something like Dustin Hoffman taught like a master class oh, for acting and that. stuff. Yeah. And there was another one, but I don't remember what it was, I but can't that's remember. the one that I took. But note yeah, of. it is like a series of things. And then like Cine family has been doing master classes and everyone's doing master classes. David, days. we should do a master class. <laughs> Soon I'm you'll not, be able to not qualified in what yeah, you will. Hey, 
seen you getting your mattress. <laughs> I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> Remember that thing that's consuming your life? Yeah. Right, right. I forgot. I uh, think it should, it should be more at the forefront of my brain, actually, I guess. But Susan Kane, neither of us attended the screening. No, uh, which is too bad because Peter Bogdanovich yeah, is Yeah, it was Peter great. Bogdanovich and Beatrice Wells. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, afterwards. Okay, moving on. Oh, yeah. Uh, Cross Current is a Chinese movie. I forgot to note the director, but I mainly went because it is uh, shot by Mark Lee Pingbing, who shot a lot of Ho Shen's movies, including The Assassin. And for those who saw The Assassin, you probably know that Cross Current is a gorgeous looking movie um, that is it's pretty dense, but it's kind of loosely about this guy who inherits this uh, kind of fishing ship and kind of uses it to chase this mysterious woman who kind of seems like she may be a ghost or something down this river. And so it has a very strong, if you'll excuse me, current running through it. Uh, and it's just so gorgeous and so enveloping. This is one of those movies that wasn't the reason that the election was a problem for when it fell right before AFI Fest is that AFI Fest shows a lot of movies that give you a lot of space to think about things, which is great for the most of life <laughs> until this last week. Yeah. Uh, so that was kind of filling the longer languid uh, places in cross current. So but, your, your problem with the festival is there are fewer transformers. Hey, transformers <laughs> would have been great. Yeah. Uh, Chow Yang is the director's name. Okay. Thank or you. Yang Chow. I'm not sure. I think it's Chow Yang. I, I can't remember. Um, but it, it is a very good movie and a very uh, interesting movie. And I'm glad AFI has showed it because it was a, technically a 2016 release that, as with most Chinese movies in Los Angeles, only played like 25 miles away. Um, so I was glad that I had the opportunity to see it because I, I really think it's uh, well done and kind of meditative on some interesting things about life and about ambition and about <clears throat> chasing women down the river, uh, metaphorically speaking, for the most of us. Um, but yeah, I, I really liked it. All right, uh, now is the time to take a glass of water. Okay. Take a drink of water, because I have a two in a row that I saw uh, that you didn't. I saw uh, the only one of the cinema legacy movies that I saw was um, Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust from 1991, I think. Uh, and I don't know, Tyler, you've seen some Julie Dash short films in, yeah, in school just, this semester. Yeah, I just saw one. Um, and this is a movie that I had heard a lot about recently because it was mentioned so many times as an inspiration uh, for Lemonade the, or, or for certain oh, right. segments from Lemonade. And it's, I watched yeah. that for class as well. Uh, I have not actually watched Lemonade front to back. I've it's seen... pretty amazing. Oh, okay. Um, cool. I don't uh, care for that music, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's all right. Um, I like Beyonce's music. I don't love it. I used to hate it. Um, but, um, uh, there's, uh, I don't know. I feel like there's some overpraising going on with some, some of her, some it's, of her stuff. It's kind of interesting because as I, you know, was watching and as I was listening, I definitely did. This is not enough to qualify something for praise, but when you realize that, like, oh wow, yeah, she's really putting a lot of herself in here. Like, this is not like mere pop. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but uh, like this is really important and she's really investing a lot of herself in that. And so like it, it, for me at the very least, it, it gives, it gives me reason to like, give it a second look upon the second look. I'm still not a huge fan of it, but it's, it's, I won't say it's important, but there's any time an artist is doing something that many people would view as vital to their career. It's worth it. It's worth noting. I think. Um, well the, the, the influence is clear, uh, pretty uh, immediately on in Daughters of the Dust, where you've got these uh, very uh, powerful and beautiful black women in like sort of white 
lace dresses with big hats in like southern pastoral settings mm-hmm. you know um it it looks yeah i was like oh yeah I, that's i guess what they, they very much did get that from this movie uh it's a terrific movie daughters of the dust i i i loved it it's um uh it's one of those movies that i, I can tell you what the plot is but it's not actually really important technically and the, because it's not even really a plot basically it's uh it, it's set in takes place in 1901 or 1902 um during the quote unquote great migration and it's about a group uh uh of uh, a black community most of them are family living who, who live on an uh an island off the coast of south carolina uh getting ready to pack up their lives and move up north and move move to the, move to the northern northern states um and so that's yeah, that's only a plot to it is that they're getting ready uh and one of the women who used to live there has has returned to help in this in this journey so her return has sort of set off a lot of things but it's mostly just a lot of um people just talking uh but it's incredible you know they were talking beforehand the director was there um i didn't stay for the q a because i don't as a rule stay for q a's um but uh, the director talked beforehand and someone from AFI has talked beforehand about what, the, what the, that in 1991 or whatever year it was, this was a big hit at Sundance. It was uh, a big hit. And then it kind of, no one seemed to talk about it for a long time. And I guess, um, and that's unfortunate, but I kind of understand why it might not have taken off because it is an aggressively uncommercial movie. It has, it has no plot. Um, like I said, no real plot. Um, it's, uh, I mean, it is technically linear, but it's uh, ethereal and episodic. And also, uh, there's there's title text on screen at the beginning about how the, the and this is this is true. Um, they're called they were called like Gola people or something. But the you know black former slaves and generation after slaves who lived on these islands off the coast of South Carolina and Georgia had uh, in many ways a culture like the like the Galapagos turtles, like um, a culture that was very specific to that island and that includes dialect Hmm. so you've got this movie that has zero white faces in the cast it's an entirely black movie and one native american guy so that's probably a little bit hard uh, unfortunately uh to make it more commercial uh it has no plot um and you've got people talking like uh tom hanks and cloud atlas i was gonna say if this was the true true (laughs) yeah it Um. is it is kind of like that um so uh, i i understand why maybe this movie hasn't taken off but it's so beautiful and so immersive um and it definitely it does one thing tyler and i think we've been doing this podcast together for almost 10 years and one thing we've talked about a lot uh in different movies is always pointing out how difficult it is for a movie to make it look like it's either really cold or really hot yeah um and this is a movie that looks like the swampy humid south uh it's and it's fantastic (laughs) it's very immersive in that sense so let me ask you this okay so I feel as though even before uh, in my class we were talking about Julie Dash, I feel like I had he- I've heard more about Daughters of the Dust like in the last few years, um, and though I even though I haven't seen it yet, you know you're describing it as non-commercial and that, but I do wonder if maybe it has grown in stature because film audiences like not the mass but like cinephiles have sort of come around what was that i said cinephiles like you and me and i guess scott i suppose so (laughs) um but the uh there's been uh, a general uh, 
more of an embracing of like nonlinear ethereal. I mean, when you look at the, the, what, for example, Terrence Malick has done, let's say since thin red line, which while being ethereal, but the very fact that it's a war movie, like is a bit more straightforward, but like more and more, he's been kind of just kind of going off and further and further into the, uh, into the ether. And so I wonder if a movie like daughters, of the dust not embraced at the time, uh, if honestly, if like film lovers kind of caught up to it and now it's part of the conversation. I think there's something to that. I also think there's the social justice standpoint where people sure. like our friend Mariah have been, you know, seeking out, uh, female directed films in this case, female minority directed films. Yeah. Like there, I think there's been a, at least a, a, a subset of cinephiles who have been actively seeking out, uh, that kind of, you know, those kind of auteurs, uh, and maybe that helped um, it mm-hmm. come back to into the forefront. I don't no. know. Any well, thoughts? it also just got restored, which might have been motivated by those same things. Right. But I think the reason it's back in the conversation, like that film specifically, is that it got restored. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then the other film I saw, and this is one I, I love. Uh, you know, a lot of times I, at AFI Fest, I will try to go for um, directors that I've heard of or films that have, you know, because AFI Fest in a lot of ways plays as sort of a best of the year in festivals, you know, like, so a lot of times there are movies that I've heard of, but sometimes I'll go to something I hadn't heard of, although apparently I should have, because apparently this movie did very well at South by Southwest. Um, but, uh, it's called Donald cried, uh, it's directed by Chris, uh, Avedisian. Um, and it's, uh, I, but I, I didn't know anything about it and I, I took a chance and I'm so glad that I did because it is, uh, as far as the films that I saw at the festival, there are other films that I had seen before. Um, it's my favorite thing that I saw. Uh, it's incredibly funny, but also incredibly um, bitter and sad and dark. Uh, basically, the premise is there's this guy named Peter. Not his not, name is not not Donald, um, who's come back to the uh, Rhode Island community he grew up in for the first time in about 20 years because his grandma has died and he's there to help you know uh, sort of pack up her house and sell her house and stuff like that um, and he runs into living across the street his childhood through high school best friend Donald who uh, you know Peter is a completely different person 20 years later Donald is essentially exactly the same yeah. and there's some hint that you know he might be a little bit developmentally disease probably not you know the you know maybe has a lower iq or whatever um but uh it's it's the whole the movie i'm watching and they're like as soon as two scenes of donald and donald shows up two scenes in two more scenes of seeing donald and and i said there's no way this movie existed without this character existing first someone must have created this character because he's so specific and played so well and uh i did stay for some of the q a uh for this mostly because i was curious and yeah it turns out i didn't realize that donald is played by the director who Mm -hmm. is also um one of the writers uh and this was a character that he just sort of made up to fuck with his friends when they were driving (laughs) around uh but um it's incredibly funny and keeps like Donald is such a ridiculous character that it keeps skirting the line of being cartoonish, but never quite does because I think the, the aesthetics are, are very grounded and muted. And it also has this incredibly poignant, uh, bittersweet look at, um, the idea that someone 20 years removed, uh, can still be 
Pete, the, the character Pete, Peter has made so many choices in his life that he's realizing now spending time with Donald again are motivated by his high school experience, even though he probably doesn't consciously think of them in that, in that way day to day. Now that he's living in Manhattan and he's successful in the finance world uh, uh, or whatever, um, there's so much of him that is a constant reaction against the um, unpopularity and the slings and arrows or whatever that he suffered um, in, 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 in high school. And there's also, you come to realize I don't want to give too much of this way, but there's also some, uh, things he maybe hasn't atoned for in the terms of the way he took the abuse that he suffered as a heavy metal nerd and visited again upon his quote unquote friend, Donald, who was one step further down the social ladder than he was. Um, but, uh, I'm making this sound super heavy and it is super heavy, but it is very, very funny. It's, uh, it's an incredibly, uh, incredibly funny movie, mostly because of Chris Avedizian's, uh, um, performance. <laughs> there's one, <laughs> this one party tells a story and I'll even just me telling this won't really be a spoiler because it, you still need to see Chris Avedizian do it as Donald, but he's telling a story about, Hey, do you remember, uh, I can't remember the character's name. It was like Ronnie and Denny. Do you remember Ronnie and his younger brother, Denny from high school? And he was like, uh, and the guy's like, I remember Ronnie. He's like, well, Denny was younger brother. Anyway, Denny got into a motorcycle accident and his body got ripped in half. <laughs> and it's like, it's like, I still buy weed from Ronnie. Sometimes if one of the, and if you knew them both, if one of them was going to get ripped in half, you'd want it to be Denny. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I guess, I I guess, um, maybe this is a very specific brand of humor that not everyone will love, but I, I loved it. Uh, it was the, the best I felt (laughs) at the festival. All right. Uh, let's move on to a film, uh, speaking of heavy, but also very funny. Yeah. Film, uh, that Scott and I have both seen, um, Paul Verhoeven's L. I got corrected by a listener, by the way. Yes. Uh, oh, really? Paul Verhoeven, uh, by a, uh, yeah, a listener who would know. It's Paul Verhoeven. Huh. Um, Paul Verhoeven's L, um, which, uh, yeah, it's, uh, we talked about it on a movie journal, so Scott, uh, what did you think? Oh, geez, well, I don't know what you guys talked about on the movie journal, so. Oh, wait, did I listen to that episode? Anyway, doesn't matter. Uh, I thought you listened to all our episodes. <laughs> I, I must have, but I don't remember what you said about it. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I, this is surprisingly actually the only third, only the third Paul Verhoeven movie I've seen. Uh, I've seen Robocop and Black Book and this. Um, but I, yeah, I completely loved it. It's, Isabel Huppert is rightly getting tons of praise because it's just as much her movie, if not more so than it is Paul Verhoeven's, even though he like bent over backwards trying to get it made. I'm sure you know the story of how it was supposed to be made in the United States, mm-hmm. but yeah. then yeah, it got shipped off to France and he learned French for the purpose of making it, which is crazy. Yeah. Um, and the, yeah, the, there's a, there's a, like, there's a screenwriting credit, but then there's also credit for the person who translated right. because the screen yeah. the, the screenplay was written in English yeah. and then it was translated but into have you seen that guy's filmography? He writes like tons of schlocky horror movies and somehow <laughs> ended up writing this. Uh that's awesome. I mean yeah, no, it's great. I, I mean, in many ways this is kind of a I don't know if you'd say schlocky, but it is it if if you were gonna put this on in the in a section it cinephile video it would go in the rape revenge section technically which is usually an exploit exploitation uh genre but that's also not what it is but it it very much is that or is aware that it is that and is doing the opposite of what you would expect from that oh yeah at every turn especially through who performance who 
never i mean her reaction to any situation is not what you would expect even by the end when you think you've expected all you right. can from this character um but yeah, yeah it starts with her getting raped and then immediately trying to put her life back together and not really quite being able to in part because everything in her life is completely insane. Like yeah. her family members are crazy. Literally in the case of her dad who murdered a ton of people 20 years, like 50 years before the movie takes place. And her mom is just a sex maniac who's <laughs> trying to seduce younger men constantly. Uh, her neighbor is like an Uber Christian and her neighbor's husband is loosely hitting on her and her she's sleeping with her best friend's husband and she's trying to develop a game video game with very much rapey overtones um everything about this movie is just nuts but it all fits really well and by the time it gets to a dinner party where all these different elements are together it's like something out of the rules of the game or something oh yeah uh but it's oh boy i think i i what i was getting at when i talked about the movie journal was that it's a it's a challenging movie in more ways than one. It's challenging in the superficial sense because it has brutal depictions of rape and other sort of uh, violence um, that are difficult to watch. And Paul Verhoeven does not um, pull any punches uh, in the way he depicts these things. But it's also challenging because we, from a moral standpoint, we want to see a rape victim react a certain right, way and sure. it intentionally dissatisfies us yeah. uh, and challenges um, what we expect or what we need as catharsis. Perhaps uh, it didn't. I think that I said this in my uh, review that it uh, denies us catharsis. I, I think by the end, there's a certain level of that, especially by the last scene, which is like almost a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I don't want to give away the yeah, list. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. It's it's a crazy movie, and people should definitely see it, and it has a lot of genuine integrity behind it. It's not just crazy for the purpose of being crazy, I guess I would say. Yeah. All right. Um, all right, they showed Flirting with Disaster. Was that a master class or something? I don't know. Uh, David uh, or Russell showed up for a conversation. Okay. They might have just been a regular conversation, though, nothing masterful about it. Well, now I feel like i got to look up and see if they described <laughs> but it. But we all like Flirting with Disaster, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wait, I thought you really liked it. I think I do. I don't know. Maybe I, I feel like maybe a part of me has, um, a part of my opinion of David Russell has been retroactively discolored by mm. my opinion of his more recent work. No. Um, I really like his recent work and I'm surprised that people think his recent work is such a departure given flirting with disaster, which would fit completely in with what he's doing now. What's the most recent thing? American joy. or no joy. Yeah. Joy. That's right. Which you yeah. liked. I did. I, I loved joy. I didn't like joy and I didn't like American hustle and I didn't really like, uh, the fighter. Yeah. I really liked um, the fighter American hustle. I thought it had some great elements to it. And then I really responded to joy, but I recognize that they're all forgetting silver Lang's playbook. Yeah. I that's right. I never saw it. And oh, I, it's good. Yeah. I okay. liked that one quite a bit. Um, that one I think would fit in very well with, uh, very much with so. flirting with disaster. But yeah, I guess what I'm, I think what I've said about, David Russell with in terms of especially in terms of joy and American hustle um, is that it feels like he's <laughs> with with every scene or with every shot I often I get the impression that he's picking his favorite take regardless of how it ne- they all necessarily fit together that's what's so exciting and but I wonder <laughs> if flirting with disaster is just the example where that all worked right and it just doesn't work as much for me for an American hustle and joy I could see that. Uh, anyway, we don't need to talk about floating with disaster, but they showed that there was a conversation. Um, and let's move on. 
Okay, the next movie is uh, Christian or Christian Bonjou's uh, Graduation. I, I like most cinephiles. I was a big fan of uh, Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days, which we talked about. I said that in the right order, yeah. Uh, which we talked about in our 2007 episode. Uh, it's one of the great modern films, yeah. I think. And to go even further back, when Tyler and I did our uh, best films of the decade of the of the oh. aughts, I think yeah. I might have had it might have had it at number two. Actually, yeah, you had it pretty high up, there. rightly so. Uh, and I really liked Beyond the Hills, which was his follow up movie from 2012, which not a lot of people were a fan of, but I thought was amazing. Did you see it? <laughs> You're nodding at me. For I'm reason. just I'm listening. Yeah. Um, and then this is his newest film since then. So he takes a decent amount of time between, uh, this is about, uh, his other two films, or I think he made one before that, but kind of his two more noteworthy films that people know, uh, were about how women navigate their roles in very patriarchal cultures. And this assumes the same patriarchal culture, but from a man's point of view, it's about a guy who's very determined to see his daughter, uh, go to college in England and she has to pass a certain number of tests with a certain, uh, with a high enough score in order to cement her place there. And he's very intent on seeing her do that. Even though, uh, the first test she has to take is the day after she gets, uh, sexually assaulted in the street. Um, and so the pressure he puts on her is definitely overbearing and too much for her to take, but she is used to performing in a certain way to please him in a way. And it's very much about how isolated he becomes as a result of the pressure he's putting on her and other people in his life uh, in order to get them to meet his needs. And as one would expect from Christian Manjou, it's very also intensely plotted and every scene kind of, even though he does the, Romanian new wave thing of very long takes and mm. taking his time, but it's very intensely driven and there's something kind of purposeful behind each scene, very dramatic and it's very uh, exciting stuff. I, I don't know if I liked as much as his other two, but I think it's a worthy entry into his uh, filmography. Uh, real quick. Yeah. So four months, three weeks, two days. You mentioned that uh, we discussed it on our 2007 episode, which is in fact a bonus episode. Hey. And so, uh, listeners, if that sounds interesting to you, it's the three of us plus a uh, friend of the show, Jason Aiken, talking about how great of a year uh, 2007 was. So now would be the time to buy it so, to try it so that you can hear some great podcasting and stick it to Donald Trump. Yeah, Freedom <laughs> of the Press Foundation. All right. Um, Maybe he'll shut us down. No, they, I hope. I, I wish he would. I wish he would try. Um, uh, we mentioned Ida Lupino's The Hitchhiker, um, which you'd seen before, right? Yeah, but I, so long ago that I don't remember. Okay, it's probably pretty good. Another one is uh, Il Surpasso. Yeah, which I've seen fairly recently. It's a road trip comedy uh, that was said to have inspired uh, what's his face is Sideways. Um, Alexander Payne. That's the guy. Uh, but it's uh, very much kind of in the mode of that 60s Italian Renaissance kind of the Dolce Vita kind of freewheeling lifestyle. So it's it's a worthy entry there. Criterion recently released it, which is why it's kind of enjoyed a new Renaissance. And I, I think rightly so. Uh, and then getting back to this, if you actually saw next up is the Billy Crudup vehicle, Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> it almost starts that way because it has this framework. He plays a journalist interviewing uh, Jackie Kennedy, played by Natalie Portman, um, about her life in the week or so since uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated and about her life before that and uh, just all the pressures of public life and it's a very good if i think the framing device is maybe a little didactic in terms of asking the questions we need to ask of jackie kennedy um but the way it exemplifies that in kind of the flashbacks and all that is very strong and kind of points to 
how act we kind of look back now as you know enlightened people and say that the 50s early 60s housewife is just like this passive role that women took but the way that uh, Jackie Kennedy, at least in the film, posits it is as a very active participant in terms of not just being supportive of her husband's dreams, but in terms of like how important it is for her to reflect the same goals that he's putting out there in the world as an example of how they can be lived out, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Just to kind of not just to bolster him, but because she believes the same things. And so the way that she can live those out is as strong an example as his, uh, you know, very eloquent speeches. So she can, her role is not just, you know, to be the dutiful housewife, but to be kind of an active participant in the image of the Kennedy generation that they're trying to put out. And it's a very interesting performance by Natalie Portman. I think she really gets at the kind of at once open and guarded nature that political figures have to have of being vulnerable in certain ways in terms of, showing the public who you are and trying to invite them into your home and invite them into your vision for the world. But also there's only so much about yourself. You're going to end up being able to give away because you're ultimately in the public light and everything you say will be dissected in some way. Um, yeah. So I, I really responded. It was directed by Paulo Lorraine who has three films out this year. <laughs> Because that's just how he rolls. What's um, the third one? Two of them were at AFI. Fest. Yeah, the other is the club, which was at last year's AFI Fest and came out oh. in America this year. So yeah, that's a last. That's last year's movie. I guess if you go by certain people's rules. <laughs> yes. No. Uh, but yeah, this guy Pablo Lorraine, he just uh, he just keeps getting better because he did um, no no, which I think was the first one made a big splash. Yeah. Before that, there was uh, Tony Manero and Postmortem. Oh, yeah, uh, I haven't seen anything before. No. Um, I have a Postmortem. Uh, blu-ray if you ever want to borrow it it's a, it's a good movie i still got to catch up on his all the three movies he has this year i've only seen jackie now natalie portman you say it's an interesting <laughs> performance like to what degree is it interesting is it uh, like really great and people are really going to get behind it I what think do you people think? are really going to get behind it all right <laughs> um, i like to hear uh, i see uh, and i forgot to look up the guy's name but whoever plays john f kennedy it looks striking like a john f kennedy and when he first shows up on screen it is frightening uh, i was going to ask who it was um this, well, this is the, I like this, this, uh, relationship we've, um, developed here where Scott says, I don't know what country it's from. I can't remember the director's name. I don't know and who David that is. Immediately and, looks I, it up. and I looked it up. Uh, but Peter Sarsgaard plays, uh, Bobby Kennedy and does mm. a really good job. And their relationship is really interesting because they are ultimately family who became kind of political and Jeez Louise, this guy looks like, Jennifer. right. And especially when they do his hair and put him in the suit and it is Casper oh. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> really Phillipson. Wow. And I imagine I mean, he's like, Man, I'm they surprised he's out, ever played anyone other than... I know, they must have put out quite the hunt to find this guy. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, as I was saying, the relationship she has with uh, Bobby Kennedy is very... Because they become kind of rocks for each other in terms of just like the personal mourning of losing the family member, mm-hmm. whereas everybody else is figuring out what the hell to do with the country. Yeah. Um, and oh, John Carroll Lynch plays LEJ and does a very good job nice. of playing the guy who's not the, in the spotlight at all, who nobody's thinking about, but is the president all of a sudden and has his own agenda that he has to start enacting and kind of the already tense relationship that was as far as I can understand there between the Kennedys and the Johnsons becomes amplified as they start to kind of move into what is actually her house for the time being. Um, But yeah, it's a really interesting dynamic film. Let's move on to a film I'm very excited to talk about, uh, Pedro Almodovar's Julieta. Yeah, this is, uh, you're going to have to get us kicked off here because I don't know where to begin with this thing. Well, I, I feel, I'm glad that you, uh, you, you, I'm taking, you really liked it. I did like it. Because I feel like it's been, sometimes 
Almodovar has films that come out that people are like, oh, this is good, but this is not, this is lesser Almodovar. And I feel like that's how this is being talked about. I feel like it's been uh, like its last few movies, even though they're all been really good. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I feel like Almodovar is a guy where I'm, at some point, I just like, I had, I've drank the Kool Aid and yeah. I'm like in for the long haul because I love all Almodovar films. Um, uh, especially this can I live in, which uh, I feel like is another one that did what that's what you're talking about. Like, I think that was kind of his last, the one that was perceived to be really good, but bracketed in there was I'm so excited and uh, hell, he did one before that that was uh, perceived similar to Julieta, but I thought was also super strong. So it's like one of those things where like, even if it's not talk to her all about my mother, he has yeah. like such a baseline quality. That's still like so much better than most other films. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, Julieta is about a, uh, I guess it, it's takes place over about 30 years of yeah. his life, but not, uh, not all in order. Right. Um, it starts present day. Um, and, uh, I love the opening scene, which, um, uh, I've my review obviously hasn't posted yet because movie hasn't come out yet, but I've already written my review. So I, I'm quoting or I'm, or I'm paraphrasing myself in a review that I have not yet published. Um, but the opening scene kind of intentionally maybe misleads you as to what type of movie you're watching because it feels very Hitchcock in that it feels like yeah. these people are up to something because they're looking for hidden money. That's right. And the, and the music is kind of dramatic. Um, but then you realize, Oh, they're just packing for a trip. They yeah. already have planned and they just misplaced uh, some extra dollars, but it gets you into this, um, sort of, uh, paranoid, uh, state. So that when Julieta then, in the next scene, I think runs into a friend of her daughter's that she hasn't seen in, in 20 years or, or something. Yeah. Um, and completely upends her life based on that casual encounter. Um, you're, you're primed for, you know, for this to be some sort of mystery. And I guess it is a mystery. I know. I feel like we have to dance around the plot because it doesn't even become what it's about until like at least halfway through the movie, if not further. Yeah. Yeah. So then, yeah, yeah, exactly. We won't go too much. So then from there, it jumps back to young Julieta meeting, um, her, uh, husband after, uh, the, uh, a strange encounter on a train with another man. That's, uh, not worth going into right now, but is absolutely essential to the movie. Um, meeting her husband, having her daughter and meeting this girl that she ran into, uh, when her daughter's yeah. young and them growing up together. Uh, and then, yeah, like you said, it, <laughs> then, then it becomes what it's about <laughs> eventually. Yeah. Uh, but it, I, I think you could loosely say it's about, uh, questioning the role you have in other people's lives and how much responsibility one can take for, things that happen in them uh yeah i mean i, I guess um that's that's true i especially like that idea of responsibility because um i think there's a recurring theme or motif of julieta being angry at the way that other people are treating her and not realizing that she is essentially treating other people the yeah, exact totally. same way uh and there's also a uh, and a big thing that I took away from it as someone who has, uh, you know, lost uh, a father or experienced uh, loss in my life, uh, there is this idea that when you say goodbye to someone, anytime you say goodbye to someone, it could be the last time. You don't yeah. know. Like, that's that's something that comes up a couple of times in the movie. Um, but it's, uh, I think I feel it's, it's lush and it's, uh, there's, romance in it but also in that Almodovar way where sometimes he's he could be romantic and then be incredibly unsentimental yeah. about romance at the same time and it also has a really beautiful and sexy sex scene on a train that isn't particularly erotic but is so gorgeous to look at yeah 
Yeah. Here's some more. Here, here's some more sexy sex scenes. <laughs> and Julieta, uh, as we said, was played by two women. And it's one of the very rare instances where I really feel like it's the same character. I feel like mm-hmm. usually when you have two people playing the same character, there's always some disconnect. And right. I never felt that with this movie. Uh, and then moving on, you didn't see the next one on the list. Yeah. Um, so uh, move on to Layla M. Yes, which is about a young woman who's rebelling from her family, but not in the way you usually think. Usually you get these movies about uh, people, and especially women who grew up, grew up in very strict backgrounds and are trying to kind of break away from that. This woman's growing up in kind of a very conventional background, but she is... Her family is a uh, Muslim, but living in, uh, I'm forgetting the country again, but some Eastern European country mm-hmm. where they're still the minority. Um, but she is growing more active in her faith uh, to the point of possible extremism um, and kind of slowly gets involved with this guy over the internet. And uh, what I liked about the movie, the in, Netherlands, the Netherlands, uh, what I liked about the movie in <laughs> towards the beginning is that it portrays, a woman who's very zealous about her faith, but isn't violent about it. She's just very assertive um, and is not the kind of role you see uh, Muslim characters take in a lot of, especially Western films where they're either going to be kind of passive and, you know, friendly, or they're going to be an outright terrorist. Mm-hmm. It's just a woman who really believes in the Quran and really believes everything about the faith. And that extends to even women's roles, but uh, at, kind of as with Jackie, sorry about that (laughs) kind of as with Jackie, she sees the role of the wife as an active part in the marriage. And so she gets involved with this guy who seems to kind of believe the same thing. And their initial romance is, like I said, just very different from what you usually see of Muslim characters. They're very much in love and very sexually involved and they kind of meet each other on equal footing. It's very exciting, but then it kind of slowly takes a predictable twist where he gets more extreme and she's not ready to make the same steps. And he just becomes more of an asshole and she becomes more, uh, frightened and sheltered. And I feel like that's where it starts to be the same kind of movie we've seen a thousand times. That's not, it doesn't really add anything to it. It's not particularly poetic. The dialogue's kind of flat and declarative. Um, and it just kind of falls in this more conventional pattern, which was kind of disappointing. Uh, next up lion. Oh yes. Uh, I forgot that I saw a movie today out of the blue called lion, which is coming out this fall from the Weinstein company. Um, it's coming out very soon. Is it? Yeah. Like next weekend? I think it comes out Thanksgiving, yeah. Oh, I gotta write my review fast. Oh, <laughs> that reminded me. That's why I asked you, yeah. Um, but yes, it's been the plot is about it's a real life story about this guy who was separated from his family at a very young age, was adopted by an Australian couple, and ended up re- being reunited with his family by finding them through Google Earth. Uh, his birth family is from a very kind of remote rural village um, in India, I believe. Um, and so it'd be impossible to track them down any other way, but through the modern technology, he's able to with a great deal of work. Uh, but it doesn't even get into that until at least halfway through the movie. A good deal of the film is spent uh, in his childhood in how he becomes initially separated and then all the trials and tribulations that lead up to him being adopted by this Australian mm-hmm. couple, um, which is a smart way to play it because by the time he does start looking for the family looking for people on google earth is not a terribly cinematic endeavor (laughs) they you know they give him the big board in the room with all the pins that he can put and all the things he can draw on the wall but ultimately it's a lot of montage of him looking at the computer putting a pin on the wall you know it's not the most dynamic 
story to tell cinematically, but all the stuff with him as a kid is super cinematic because it's him living on the street, him dodging the multiple uh, people who come after him to pro- put him in some kind of child slave trade. Um, so all that stuff is really interesting. And Dev Patel, who plays him as an adult, is is good. And Nicole Kidman, who plays his adoptive mother, is fine. Uh, Rooney Mara shows up as his girlfriend, who's fine. And it, the second half of the movie is kind of all just fine. You know, like I said, there's really only so much you can do with a great, what is a great story, but not a very cinematic one. All right. I will briefly mention uh, a movie called Live Cargo. I say briefly because um, I didn't care much for it. It's a black and white thriller, technically, is how uh, it's described. And technically, the plot is a thriller type plot, but it's not. It's the least thrilling movie maybe I've ever seen because it's (laughs) it's so boring. I mean, it's it's. a lot. I mean, some of the cinematography is is beautiful. It's a, the general plot is that this uh, couple, played by uh, Keith Stanfield and uh, Dree Hemingway, um, go to the Bahamas, where I guess Dree Hemingway's character grew up. It's a movie that is like it has so little that actually happens, but then even when stuff does happen, it's I'm always confused as to the, it. Just seems like a half baked uh, movie. Um, they they go to the Bahamas for a week to get away after. Um, and to patch the relationship up together after she has miscarried. Um, and they end up getting, again, this is like the description says they get involved in like a human trafficking thing, but they are not involved at all. (laughs) It happens completely. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, tangential to them. Um, uh, and it's, yeah, beautiful to look at, but, uh, not enough so that uh it held my interest i kind of so the, their story is thriller adjacent <laughs> adjacent is exactly the word i was looking for yeah their story is thriller adjacent but even the thriller story is just it's so slow <laughs> it's so <laughs> like, angry well, give I mean, me more thrills man and i say that like i like a lot i would say a huge number of movies that i love are can be could be described as slow but i hesitate to use the word slow when something is i think uh, you know, methodical and right, measured, right. and like I really like movies that have that that pace. But if a movie is boring, then yeah. it's slow. Yeah. And so yeah. this movie is only like eighty five minutes long, but it is slow. <laughs> yeah. If you notice that at eighty five minutes, that's trouble. <laughs> yeah. Um. All right. Uh, going from live cargo to the lore. Uh, yes, this was well introduced by the filmmaker. This one, I do know the country. It's from Poland because the filmmaker said that due to Krzysztof Kozlowski's legacy in Poland, not a lot of musicals and horror movies come out of there. So she decided to make one that was both. Um, <laughs> and it's about these mermaids who come on land to feast on men, uh, but also get involved in a nightclub act. Uh, <laughs> like you do. Um, the, particularly uh, mythology around these mermaids is that if they dry out enough, their mermaid tales, which amusingly are very long and disgusting mermaid tales, which is kind of awesome. Uh, but when they dry out, they just become regular legs, which is very handy on a production level. Um, but, but if they get back in the water, they grow back or even if they just get wet at all. Oh, I see. Yeah. Oh. Um, so rather predictably, one of the women is, uh, prone to love and the other is just out for the the feast as it were um and it's kind of a scattered movie i feel like this happens with a lot of eastern european movies where 
you can tell on paper the plot makes sense, but something about the way it's told, you just can't follow it. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have had this experience before, but I feel like it happens enough that it can't just be a coincidence. It might just be a cultural thing of the way people follow stories, but I, I have a, a very hard time following some of these movies. Uh, but it has some great musical numbers, um, particularly one set at a, a shopping mart where the two girls are just like, we're out on the town and determined to make the best of life, and it's very fun and poppy. Um, and it has some generally crazy... Uh, horrific stuff including where uh the woman more prone to love gets her mermaid tail sawed off and replaced with human legs and you see it all um (laughs) uh, but yeah okay it's it's a it's a decent time in the movies it's very uh weird uh this next one you're gonna have to say the name of uh i don't know it's translated to disregard the night uh, it was billed at afi fest as i guess malgré la nuit uh i learned a little bit of french for when i went to france but forgot most of it um you don't remember the french word for disregard <laughs> <laughs> let alone how to pronounce it i have to assume um, that actually that word in france is used a lot <laughs> uh this i went purely off a of friend's record i think like it's maybe implied a lot yeah there you go there you go <laughs> this i went purely off a of friend's recommendation who saw the director's last film at afi fest i think like seven or eight years ago uh and i didn't really have any particular designs on the evening so i decided to give this two and a half hour movie about a guy who tries to find his lost love through the world of uh snuff porn films um which is, so it's just as punishing as you would expect from that description and at two and a half hours and that plot doesn't even kick in until probably an hour into the movie um but it is so gorgeous and so enveloping and it all the dialogue is kind of like whispered so it's a very quiet movie and the scene transitions are kind of done in such a way that it all kind of feels like one continuous scene, even though there's clear separations, it just kind of fades in and out of things. And I think the aesthetic experience is so enveloping that kind of overwhelms, however punishing the story may actually be. Um, but yeah, I, this was maybe the best film I saw at A5S just because of that particular experience. And, and because for the week in which we've been talking about, it very much reflected my uh, moral <laughs> state at the time. <laughs> Uh, what's the next one? Uh, my entire high school sinking into the sea, which is an animated film starring Jason Schwartzman and Lena Dunham and some other people who are famous in comedy circles. Um, it's about this guy who's kind of unpopular at school, but who in the midst of this earthquake that sends his entire high school sinking into the sea, he becomes a bit of a hero, but that framework sounds annoying, but he still remains a Jason Schwartzman asshole, which is very mm-hmm. amusing. Uh, but I saw this one kind of late at night. So I was admittedly a little in and out, uh, awake wise, but it, it's quite funny and very beautifully animated. It uses clearly like flash software, like all animated stuff does this these days, but it's still quite beautiful in how it executes that. Well, let's move on to one. I'm excited to talk about, uh, the other Pablo Lorraine movie, uh, that played the festival, uh, Neruda, the other Pablo Lorraine, uh, biopic. That's not really a biopic. <laughs> I still haven't seen it. I'm uh, very excited to, though. uh, Neruda. Oh, you didn't see. It. Okay. I yeah. didn't realize that you, you didn't see it. So this one is about Pablo Neruda. Um, it's not really, um, it is, but it takes place <laughs> at the, in the late forties during the time when, um, Pablo Neruda was a fugitive, uh, because, because he was a communist. He was, um, there, he was a communist elected Senator from the communist party, but then, uh, a new regime came in and outlawed all the communists and, and, uh, made their leaders, uh, fugitives. And, um, 
so uh, so he was on the run and Pablo Neruda was also always also already a very successful poet and novelist at this point so he had a lot of people who were willing to hide him uh, and so the movie takes place over the course of him uh, for those who know the real story of Pablo Neruda he escaped and lived in exile in uh, in, in Europe for uh, decades um, and this is sort of the movie, I guess, spoiler alert, ends with him going to Europe. Uh, but that's just to, to give you an idea of the of the time frame. Uh, but it, it 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 turns this quote unquote biopic into a sort of cat and mouse uh, thriller type movie because it uh, somewhat invents, although he is based on a real guy, but um, not this didn't that guy didn't do all of these things. It invents a an antagonist, a pursuer, a police. Uh, investigator whose job is to track down Pablo Neruda and he's played by Gael Garcia Bernal and so it becomes sort of a uh, like literary and at times kind of uh, surrealist take on like heat or whatever where it's (laughs) like there's one guy chasing this other guy Um, but it uh, it becomes about something so much more than that where it's about the idea of um Pablo Neruda as a writer being well-versed in narrative and narrative structures and character archetypes, and then extrapolating that into like, how do we map those things onto our own lives and how do we end up fitting in maybe to certain character archetypes because they're so familiar to us. And then it goes on beyond that to suggest that maybe what you're happening is what you're seeing isn't even really (laughs) happening, that it's all made up by Pablo Neruda. Uh, It's, a really fantastic movie and one of if not uh the best movie that i've seen this year um and then i'll move on to another movie that i saw that i know you didn't scott and uh um i'm very sad to say you dodged a bullet because i love the films of kim key duck and um I the number one movie that I wanted to see at afi fest this year was the net the new kim key duck movie and this was just not I guess I, is that the one with the girl from the bus? Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, I guess I, I would like to maybe poll uh, the audience and see of those like how like people who hadn't seen a Kim Ki Duck movie before how they thought of this movie um, and those who had because out of context it is a dark and and grim. Uh, movie and sometimes very unsettling movie, but by Kim Ki Duck standards, it's downright <laughs> conventional. Like it's not nobody's chasing penises into traffic. <laughs> uh, yeah, and no one's you know like say swallowing a fish hook that's attached to a fish line and then pulling it back up through their uh, <laughs> through their esophagus, uh, which is what happened in the aisle, the movie that uh, no pun intended hooked me on <laughs> Kim Ki Duck. Um, it does uh, other than a. Um, uncommon method of suicide that is shown in the movie. There's nothing that perverse in the movie. It's in fact something that I think uh, we, Scott, we've talked about before. I think you would hate this movie because it is so uh, dialectical in terms of uh, how it, the, the, the plot is that it, it's a, a North Korean, uh, uh, I guess you'd call him a peasant. He's a fisherman. He fishes for a living, um, and he has a permit to fish on the uh, river that is part of the um, uh, demarcation line between North and South Korea. Uh, and while he's out fishing one morning, his net gets caught in the engine. Uh, his engine fails, and he drifts 
across the mm. border, gets picked up by South Korea and is interrogated to see if he's a spy or not. But uh, the points that it's trying to make, which I think are I'm, I'm sh- like as a political film, I'm sure these are I know that these are important points that like South Korea is meant to be a land of freedom as compared to North Korea. But the way that they treat him actually just uh, makes concrete everything that he's already been told to fear about mm. South Koreans to begin with. Um, and then it also, it's a South Korean film, obviously. Um, and it also, I think very much, uh, holds South Korea and maybe other liberal nations feet to the feet to the fire in the way that there's a certain, uh, arrogance in the way that nations that are quote unquote free view people from nations that aren't, which is basically just like an assumption without questioning that obviously you'd like you'd want to stay right. like obviously this is better for you not like taking into consideration that everything he's ever known including his entire family is in north korea and that's that's much more his his place and so it, it makes these points but it does so it's just so on the nose uh which is not what i've come i mean sometimes in fact a lot of times kim Ki-duk can be blunt uh but that's different from being uh uh ham-fisted yeah. i guess um, and I just, I, I found it to be, uh, a, a letdown because even when he is like, when there are, when there's torture, he like closes, he lets it happen on the other side of the door, which is so not a Kim Ki Duck move. <laughs> come it's on. like, come on, show us. I want to see this guy's, you know, skull get cracked up with an ashtray because I know that's what's happening right now. Um, but, uh, this is what I've come to expect from you. Like this is, I mean, you know, his, uh, uh, movie, a few movies ago, uh, Pieta, which is a movie that I think a lot of people thought was a mid-range Kim Ki-duk movie, but is to me, it's the most Kim Ki-duk <laughs> movie has ever been. And so I love it. It's about a guy who is a collector for a loan shark who, when people can't pay the money they owe, he cuts off their li- one of their limbs and then makes them sign over the insurance money they get from the government <laughs> to pay their loan. Um, and so like, that's, that's the Kim Ki-duk I want to see. <laughs> this was just, it was just too, uh, yeah, it was a polemic, I guess, and that's not what I want from him. So that's the net. Uh, yeah, next on the list is a movie that I was very much afraid would become a polemic, uh, Nocturama. Which this is the one I'm so bummed that I missed. You should be, because it doesn't have distribution and it's quite good. Um, and well, and this, I don't know if this was his last, two films ago he made House of Tolerance. Uh, oh yeah, I didn't see that which, one, but I heard such good things. Well, that made my top ten list for okay. that year. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm bummed that I missed this one. Yeah, this Nocturama. Is, this is about a group of young people in Paris who commit uh, a series of coordinated terrorist attacks meant to kind of uh, destabilize and alarm the financial sector. And they have very modern young people concerns about uh, the state of the world economy and the extent to which it's benefiting or ignoring uh, people their age. Um, And then, so we see this attack carried out very methodically with a lot of just scenes of them walking and getting into position until eventually the thing erupts probably a good 45, maybe an hour into the movie. Um, and so it's very methodical and almost kind of Brissonian in that way. And then afterwards they hide out in this mall and just get seduced by the same consumerism that they've been reacting against. And that's exciting stuff, but that's where I was afraid that it would just be this filmmaker being like, Oh, those kids, they're just as dumb as we think they are. Um, but it 
I, without giving anything away, it twisted in a very interesting way towards the end that really kind of kind of saved the movie for me and made it a lot more interesting than I thought it would be, which was already, you know, interesting enough. The characters are very dynamic without being showy. The plot outline would make you think it's kind of like a Spring Breakers thing, but it's very, like I said, Bersonian and patient with how it executes the plan and the guilt they felt afterwards and kind of the boredom that sets in after you've just done this crazy thing that you've been planning forever. Um, and yeah, I, I don't really know what to say about it because it's such a sparely plotted film, but it's quite uh, the experience. And I can't imagine it won't get distribution at some point because it's just such a unique and uh, modern and very contemporary and very urgent kind of film. All right. Um, what's next? Oh, Pan American Machinery, which is a blast. It's about a Mexican factory, uh, the owner of which dies a couple minutes into the film, and it turns out that he's been kind of like floating it, based just completely out of his pocket. And so when he dies, the whole thing's cut off, and the workers are just completely dismayed and ready to rise up against this accountant who's now their boss. Uh, but instead, he decides to rope them into this crazy plan to just, uh, keep the factory going in some way in the hopes of making it rise up again. And, but slowly it just starts decaying in every imaginable way. And anytime, I, I think it's just a good setup for a movie is anytime you get something that's very orderly and very, uh, mechanical and definitely has a system in place. Anytime you start to watch that breakdown, that's pretty much always a good comedic premise. Um, and this operates in the same way you would expect. And it's another movie, like I said, with the album, it's very Tati-esque and it's set up and mm. it's kind of slow degradation of humanity, uh, as they're trapped inside these walls, partially out of their own volition and partially just out of the habit they formed of working there for, in some cases, decades. Um, and so, you know, it's, but it's not like just a condemning of the workforce dependent condemning of capitalistic work it's just kind of an amusing wry decay like i said um so yeah it's it's a very good movie uh let's move on to uh we talked we talked about pablo lorraine having two movies three movies out this year by your account uh <laughs> um but another director has two movies out this fall is jim jarmusch quite different movies from what i understand uh quite quite different having i've seen them both right. um and this one is patterson and uh this is a an absolutely beautiful movie i think yeah i i wasn't quite as sold on it immediately even coming out of it but certainly within the first like 45 minutes to an hour of it but it just has this effect on you uh, uh things get repetitive but not in a dull way it's just kind of that familiar jarmusch way of you see yeah. something enough and it just continues to humanize the characters i guess yeah um and i think I find, uh, and I think I texted you, Tyler, about this movie. I was like, I think I saw Tyler's, I just saw Tyler's favorite <laughs> movie of, of 2016 because there's a, um, there's a theme here that I think, uh, maybe I'm going out on the ledge here and this won't resonate with you as much as I think, but there's this theme here about the idea of, um, a, and a creative artistic life and a sort of working class everyday milk toast quotidian life mm-hmm. not being, uh, at all at odds yeah, actually sure. being Absolutely. able to work uh, together uh, quite well. And I found that so like modest and so touching. Like I don't, I don't, you know, I love Jim Jarmusch movies, but um, I don't tend to find them overly emotional. Um, but I actually did um, near the end of Patterson in the screening, I did tear up. Uh, a little bit um, when he's talking to the Japanese tourist. Oh yeah! Uh, at the end of the scene with the Japanese tourists, like uh, I, I found myself very, very overcome. Um, uh, but it's still, it's not like a sappy movie at all. It's still very Jim Jarmusch. 
Um, but it's, uh, it's yet yeah, so, uh, unassuming and quiet and, and modest, um, but also so grand, uh, and it features a ton of fantastic performances, mostly Adam driver. It's yeah. The, he plays Patterson who is a bus driver in Patterson, New Jersey. Um, the movie is very much about Patterson, New Jersey. Um, I assume so. I've never been, but <laughs> I, I've never been either, but they're constantly talking about yeah. Patterson, New Jersey. Um, uh, and then the, um, his wife is played by, uh, Gold Shift Day for Ronnie. Is that her name? You got me. She was in, um, Chicken with Plums and she was in a not very good movie I saw at Los Angeles Film Festival a few years ago called The Patient Stone. Um, she's great. Um, but, uh, and their relationship, like from the setup you'd think is very like familiar and kind of annoying where she is like completely unpredictable and completely unreliable and it's constantly kind of loosely nagging at him to develop his poetry more but they're just so clearly in love and so they work well together and he is kind of passive in a way that allows her to kind of be flighty and nothing about their two very different personalities like conflicts with one another they just kind of fit very well yeah and i think thematically it gets to what i was talking about before about him showing um two very different methods of creativity. Yeah. Whereas Patterson is someone who is hyper-focused on the things he said. He writes poetry and that's all he does. Like yeah. He's super focused on his poetry. Whereas she, you know what? She designs upholstery and yeah. she and wants to play cupcakes. the guitar and cupcakes. Like, yeah. Like every time creativity you... goes out in all directions, but it, they're both completely valid forms of creative expression. Yeah. Like every time he comes to the door, she's like, what? You didn't know about my dream to form a cupcake factory or <laughs> yeah, start my, playing in a band my dream to be a national country. Star. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but I'm trying to think what other actors, uh, there's, um, the guy who plays cheaty on the good place, um, is in it. Um, and also, Who's the the bartender? Is an actor who's been yeah, a million I don't things. Know. Um, but it's like a kid from uh, Moonrise Kingdom is in it. Yeah. Oh, which uh, I was going to say that as a spoiler. Oh. <laughs> oh, sorry, everybody. Both the kids from Moonrise Kingdom are in it. Oh, okay. Together. Oh, yeah. Together. Yeah. 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 Together. Okay. Uh, I guess you pointed out this in the trailer. Uh, oh, is it? I didn't point because oh. I haven't seen the trailer. I just pointed out to you oh, that they're the kids in the movie, which because, I didn't realize. Yeah, because yeah. You, you pointed them out as like a great fifteen minutes or under performance for the BBs. Oh yeah, I, I joked like if we could do. Dual nominees, you know, we could say for this category. Yeah, because neither of them in particular like stand out, but it's just such a funny scene between the two of them. And it's one of the many kind of people who run through this bus that he drives Hmm. in a series of amusing scenes. Yeah. Uh, All right. Let's move on to uh, Rules Don't Apply, which I saw today. Oh, good. You saw it. Uh, Yeah. What did you think? Uh, I liked it a lot. I really liked it. (laughs) Okay. I'm glad. Um, Because, yeah, I looked at the Rotten Tomatoes score, which is like 64%. Yeah. I think people are not digging. uh, Yeah. my, My wife wasn't super into it yeah, but i was Julie. like this is uh this is a delightful movie i mean it's uh th- there's a certain just um it's so aesthetically pleasing to watch because it's um beautifully shot which uh by caleb deschanel yeah um and the sets and costumes are uh perfect uh, and precise it also has this great i don't know why i like this so much but every establishing shot of a city is clearly or it, i don't know if it is or if it's uh, made to look like older stock footage. Yeah. Like, which like, is such a strange decision because the rest is shot, I think digitally. Yeah. The rest it's of the very, movie looks like a movie made in yeah, 2016. It's very sharp. But every time it cuts to like Hollywood or like 
Managua, Nicaragua, or like it's, yeah. a, it's a globe-charting movie. Every one of those establishing shots looks like old stock footage. But it's not stock footage. You can tell because it's like the car is driving through LA or whatever that you see right. the car, the same car the rest of the time. It's very weird. And some of the scenes only last like 10, 15 seconds and some last for like seven minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, but, but we haven't seen what it's about. It's about uh, Alden Ehrenreich plays this kid who's all that's Alden Ehrenreich. I apologize. Uh, <laughs> I'm usually the mumbler. On I know. The show. Uh, every uh, time I come in, I outdo you. Yeah. Uh, but but, uh, plays, Han Solo yeah. plays. Uh, he plays this. Kid. He's also marvelous in Hail Caesar. He's yes. also marvelous in Tetro, the Francis Ford Coppola oh. movie, oh, yes. uh, which came out so long ago that I'm glad he's finally catching on. It was clearly the thing we had to age into it because he's like 17 when he made Tetro. Um, and now he's finally of an age where Hollywood can do something with him. Uh, but yeah, he plays this kid who's kind of, he starts as a driver for Howard Hughes and kind of rises up within his business structure. Uh, and that, uh, the flow of the movie they talked about where it'll take forever on some scenes and then take no time at all on some others very much gets to that energy you sense around Howard Hughes where it's like he could become intensely focused on something for days yeah, and then just switch on a dime and become completely on some other track. Yeah. And it kind of, that kind of plays out in the structure of the film too, which technically, technically the film takes place over about five and a half years, yeah. but really it takes place over about half a year and then jumps five yeah. years, uh, <laughs> and has its, uh, its climax. Um, and then, um, Lily Collins plays the, uh, uh, actress under contract uh, yeah. to, to Howard Hughes, uh, who strikes up a friendship, maybe a relationship with Alden Ehrenreich's character. But you've got a fantastic cast, uh, and it's a testament to the fact that a lot of, I think, actors are willing to show up yeah. for Warren Beatty, because yeah. you've got, like, Ed Harris is barely in it. Yeah, um, it's pa- seriously like, one of those short scenes that he shows up for. Yeah, um, Paul, Sor- Paul Sorvino, I feel like there must have been something on the cutting room floor because he <laughs> uh, he's, he's barely in it. Uh, you've got one one great scene with Dabney Coleman um, uh, as the, the 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 lawyer. Oh yeah, um, who comes to visit him in uh, I can't remember the movie jumps around so much I can't yeah, remember I know. if it was Las Vegas or Nicaragua or whatever. But you've got a lot of great like little um, little character pieces. But you've also got people uh, like. Um, Matthew Broderick, who's in the in the whole movie, is yeah. a major character. I was glad to terrific. see him show up so much because yeah. it feels like he's only showing up for small roles these days. Mm-hmm. But he's really good in this. Yeah, he, yeah, he's he's a major major character. Um, and he Oliver also Platt has a small part. Yeah, I was just going to say about uh, I, I've already forgotten his name. My name, my brain's not on point today. Howard Hughes. <laughs> no, uh, freaking Ferris Bueller. <laughs> Matthew Broderick. Matthew Broderick. Yes, uh, the character he plays is so focused on his ability or inability to sleep with the various women they have to drive around, <laughs> but not in, like there's some parts of the movie that feel like Warren Beatty just couldn't get off this one point, but his, he plays it in such a way that there are just some people you work with who only seem to care about one thing. <laughs> and that is very much Matthew Broderick's character. Uh, but Alden Ehrenreich and Beatty are amazing. I think they're some of the best performances this year. Uh, uh, and also I'll, uh, I'll wrap up my thoughts on this, that uh, it's a movie that, I think by the end or and at, and at its different crescendos throughout, um, gets to some pretty serious grand uh, yeah. emotions. Um, and you know, Alden Ehrenreich 
and uh, Lily Collins characters um, and they're struggling with their own faith and how they feel about things. And you've got the mental illness uh, aspect with Warren Beatty and it's very respectful of these things and really dives in, but it also never stops being a comedy. Yeah, for it's, sure. It's in, at times. And again, this is something that my wife and I, uh, by the way, by the way, my wife's name is Natalie. And I know I never <laughs> say that. And then every one time, like uh, Natalie is like, why are you so weird about talking about me on the podcast? My wife's Natalie. I love her. She's the best. Um, anyway, uh, Natalie, um, didn't find it as funny as I did. Uh, yeah. Neither so, did Julie. Yeah. But I laughed, <laughs> I laughed throughout. So yeah, especially that scene, the first scene where they're walking down the dock <laughs> and then at the end, yeah, that's I don't even want to spoil it, but it's one continuous thing. shot that ends with the punchline. You can never see coming. Uh, yeah, but also, I mean, there's a scene, I don't know if I can, if this is a, um, Matthew Broderick's character sort of gets fired at one point. Yeah. Um, and that scene is like, it's heavy because it's like Matthew Broderick who has been, his character has been buttoned up and been totally yeah. in service of Howard Hughes, or at least when he's in Howard Hughes' presence and not chase and tail. But um, <laughs> you see him sort of break and like become his own person for the first time in the movie. And you see uh, Howard Hughes at this point when his mental illness, uh, and it's a serious scene, but it's, it's so funny too. Was, is, was, is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, uh, was is was is is something that people will be all the kids will be quoting the was is was is scene um, be like Hakuna Matata alright and then um, I've got a couple here that uh, Scott didn't see one of them is a short film but it is this might be the year it didn't happen last year with the Don Hertzfeld short which a lot of people put on their top 10 uh, of lists of the year but this might be the year that a short film ends up what? on my top 10 list it's uh, it, I've been hearing about it since Sundance I didn't see it there but it's Jim Cummings Thunder Road um, which I don't know. Have you guys heard about I've th- heard of this it, movie? Yeah. Um, I only heard about it because it, um, the main reason I heard about it, uh, was the, I guess the human interest angle that he got Bruce Springsteen's personal permission to use Thunder Road, which I don't know, like how he, he couldn't, I mean, the Thunder Road isn't just like playing over the soundtrack or whatever. It's an integral part of the scene, the song Thunder Road. Um, and apparently he you know, showed it to Bruce Springsteen and Bruce Springsteen said, yeah, that's great. You can use Thunder Road and thank God. Um, but the other thing that is, uh, I guess stands out about it. It's, it's about a 12 and a half minute short. That's entirely one take. Um, but that it's not a completely static camera. I think the camera is actually doing some really, um, really important work, uh, to the, to the film. But basically the premise is it's a guy giving a eulogy at his mother's funeral. Um, and his mother was a big Bruce Springsteen fan. Uh, but, and it's super heavy. And uh, again, like I was saying, uh, earlier when we were talking about Julieta, like for someone who has lost a parent, there are things, um, I, uh, you know, I said, I teared up at Patterson. I bawled, I bawled during Thunder Road for, uh, for parts of his 12 and a half minutes. Um, but it's also so goofy and funny. Like the character is such a, he's like a, I, I, I guess if I compare it to something, it's sort of like how Eastbound and Down could sometimes, like, it's this over-the-top, cartoonish, exaggerated buffoon of a character, but sometimes they get really specific and cutting in its uh, emotional content. And Thunder Road does all of that in, in 12 and a half minutes, uh, and it's an absolutely beautiful uh, achievement. Uh, and Jim Cummings, who wrote and directed it, also plays the the lead. You said it's one shot, right? It's uh, yeah. Is it's, it one static shot or no? No, it's okay. yeah because it it 
it's because it starts with him in the pew and follows him to get okay. up. But then even while he's giving the eulogy in very subtle ways, there are lots of uh, gentle sort of pushes in and pulls hmm, out uh, and, and, re- and sometimes going left to right uh, as his eulogy gets a little more animated. Um, and then it follows him back into the seats at the end. So, yeah, it's not it's not a static shot. The, the camera, like I said, is uh, is important to it because the setup with it, you you could see how someone would just yeah. set the camera down. But that's cool. Yeah. Uh, and then um, from a short film from a 12 and a half minute film <laughs> to a two hour and 43 minute film, uh, I think um, uh, Marinade's Tony Erdman, uh, another movie I was really excited to see. Um uh, and uh, also one that did not disappoint. Um, you didn't see it, right? No, Scott? a couple weeks. Uh, a couple weeks for you. Okay. Um, it's a German film um, that is uh, about, I think I talked about it on a movie journal actually a little bit. Um, yeah, because I compare, I, I, I said it was at times like an art house jackass because <laughs> it's about like, I mean, what it's about is uh, this father comes to make a surprise visit his estranged daughter who uh, lives in Bucharest and works uh, for a very cold-hearted corporate uh, consultant company that um, is the whole uh, raison d'etre is to uh, teach other companies how to most effectively fire people <laughs> and to make money off of firing large parts of their work workforce. Um, and this guy is like a more you know, earthy school teacher type, but he's also impish. He likes to play pranks. He likes to put on wigs, put in these fake teeth. Um, and it, and so he's constantly just showing up and fucking around, um, and making her life miserable. And so what I'm describing sounds like a comedy and it is, it's a very funny movie. Um, but it's also like almost three hours long. And, um, uh, they're the things that they do and the way that she starts behaving because of his, uh, presence it keeps not it, it keeps raising the bar not in that they're what they're doing is completely is outlandish but um in terms of what what we've deemed like in the post uh ricky gervais office world uh the comedy of discomfort like it keeps making things more and more uncomfortable um and i think it's uh and i think that's a big part of what the movie's about which is testing the precarious uh, boundaries of the social contract, I think. Uh, but it's also a character piece and it's about a father and daughter reuniting. Terrific movie. What's the name again? Tony Erdman, which is, um, I wonder if that would, oh, never mind. We, that was something we talked about off mic. Um, uh, neither of the, the, neither the father or the daughter is named Tony Erdman. Okay. Um, and then finally we'll wrap up with one we both saw, but I think you liked more than I did. Oh, is, I didn't know you saw this. Uh, That's very exciting. Uh, yes. It's the one I, I rushed back on, on Monday, nice. uh, to see it at the, at the Egyptian. Um, I saw Hong, Hong Sin Su's yourself and yours. Yeah, this is, he makes a film, at least one film every year. I've been keeping up with them since 2011, I think. Uh, and this is my new favorite of his films. It's, uh, as with most of his films, it takes a, what seems to be a repetitive structure and finds ways to twist that. And I think this really twists it. It's about this guy who breaks up with his girlfriend, uh, and then keeps seeing her around town, or maybe it's not her, or maybe it's not even a person at all. Um, but it's so much about kind of the way you can break up with someone and feel like you've done the right thing, but then immediately regret it and immediately want to replay the situation and take everything back and mourn her, but still hold on to your pride. And it's 
I, I, I really found it a very effective uh, and a, a new emotional level that I hadn't really seen before with him. It's interesting to hear you talk about it. Uh, this is something that uh, um, Natalie and I talked about uh, after Nocturnal Animals, which is a movie we both liked, um, but interpreted very differently. <laughs> um, I see so much of it as being more about her than him um, in the movie and it being about uh, the way that um, relationships are never going to last with a person if you keep insisting to them on who they are, you know, Mm -hmm. if you keep insisting that, that, and that's why she's constantly, yeah, if it is the same, yeah, whether it's the same person or not, if it is the same person, then she's constantly changing her identity. Um, And I, uh, and I found that to be the thematic heft of the movie that I actually really responded to this idea that, um, two people can't come together until they, um, accept each other pretty much at face value. Uh, and I found that, um, the most interesting, I think, uh, aesthetically it kind of, I I found it to be sometimes mostly bland and sometimes off putting in the, um, (laughs) there's a, there's a couple of, uh, zooms and pans. That's what he does. Yeah. I just like, (laughs) it's, I mean, you know, uh, the zoom in general, I think as a, as a, guy who watches movies anytime a camera starts zooming i'm a little bit of an arched eyebrow like i'm not (laughs) super into the way that that happens like robert allman i think um weirdly made it work by making his zooms really slow um and i and i like i like that um but yeah there's the in the coffee shop when the guy walks in and then like he looks over to the side and he realizes that he's really, he's recognized the person he's right. looking at. We haven't seen her yet. And the camera just like zooms in on him. I was like, Oh, like it just shook me out of the movie. I, I, I can't, I can't really handle that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, the zooms in Hong Sang Soo movies have been written about at length because they're so weird and unpredictable and don't seem to exactly serve a purpose except to maybe reframe the shot in the middle of doing the shot. Yeah. Uh, but that's kind of it makes the film more playful than most kind of art house films. And even that the setups of his, which for the most part, he makes comedies. This is maybe the most serious film he's made in a while. Uh, and it's not, not a con like, no, it's still very funny. Still funny. Yeah. Especially when the two guys run into each other and turn out they went to the same middle school, (laughs) (laughs) but they're there for entirely different purposes. And, the setup of the scene would put them as enemies. Um, and that, that really also yeah. speaks to how much the female protagonist, whether or not she's the same person at all is central to the film because it's focused on these two guys, but the audience can't stop looking at her discomfort and hatred yeah. of both of them throughout the scene. Um, but yeah, you know, it's funny. My favorite, like funny scene in the movie, um, is characters standing at the bar talking about her, yeah. but the camera <laughs> never shows her, yeah. which is something that I always, I always like when, when, uh, we're, anytime characters are talking about something that we're not seeing and the director is very intentionally not showing us that thing. So it's more about what they're saying than about that. I always, I find that uh, really compelling. Um, but that's also a very funny, uh, yeah, for sure. Cause they're kind of, shitty people i guess i don't know <laughs> a lot of the people in hong Sing but sue movies are yeah and this is my first i think oh hong really Sing, sue movie um so maybe he's not for me if, he, if he's if he's uh well this zooming is his camera around all of this place <laughs> yeah if you're put off by the zooms then definitely but this is on the whole a pretty different film especially from his last five or six and that's it we did yeah it. Somehow, Tyler, Yay. you survived. You I haven't it. said anything in an hour and a half. <laughs> I chime in with the uh, horse shit every once yeah. in a while. Like, for example, here's one: Zoom is kind of a silly word. Uh-huh. 
And when you say it, like, like, oh, this uh, this director is making a very serious drama. Zoom. <laughs> what do you think of that? We got to see. We got to see this character uh, crying because they lost their uh, mother. Zoom. <laughs> well, um, I love that's it. my contribution. You're welcome. Uh, Again, uh, let's wrap up. You can find us at BattleshipRetention.com. That's where you can find all of our premium content, which if you buy it uh, between now and the end of November, uh, all proceeds go to the Freedom of the Press Foundation. Uh, you can and, and you can they, find reviews of a lot of this stuff. Uh, well, and, and real quick, uh, the premium content, it's basically all listed on the side of this of the website. So if you just okay. like scroll down on the on the right hand side, you can see everything that we offer for sale. There you go. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, there's already reviews of some of these movies on the site. Um, uh, I think is that true? Actually, there's one uh, for L. L. L yeah, L I was say at the very least. Yeah, but um, there will be more to come. Uh, right, Scott? Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, fucking week. <laughs> <laughs> so there'll be some reviews up, and then there's some stuff, um, you know, that I'll I'll be reviewing for its um, theatrical release uh, in the weeks to come. So you'll hear more about these movies at BattleshipRetention.com. But there's all sorts of other movie reviews going on at BattleshipRetention.com, including uh, I, I mentioned Nocturnal Animals. My review of that is up. Uh, I mentioned I mentioned The Edge of Seventeen. That my review of that is up. Uh, Matt's review of Manchester by the Sea is up as we speak. Um, and there's all sorts of stuff at BattleshipRetention.com. You can email me and Tyler at David at Tyler. David at BattleshipRetention.com <laughs> or Tyler at BattleshipRetention.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Davey Pretension and at Tyler Pretension. Do you have anything to say about your other podcast? Uh, more uh, than one lesson? We took a, we took a week off cause of, I, I was out of town. Uh, and then, but we're back and we're, we're starting up the, uh, the best of pictures series again. And so we recently talked about, uh, Ben Hur, which I rewatched for the first time in 16, 17 years. Okay. Um, and then, so not uh, the new one, not the, not the new one, <laughs> but uh, I'm so, but I'm so, did you, you see the new one? Off. You saw the new one, right? I saw the new one. Okay. You've seen the old one, right? I never have. No. Okay. I don't know. Four hours. I fi- yeah, I get it. I totally <laughs> get it. Uh, one thing that just fascinates me as I was watching the older one, because uh, I remember the chariot race, but I didn't, I watched it at a time that I didn't have a full appreciation for exactly how much, must have gone into that. Mm. But watching it now, it's like, oh my gosh, this is a, 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 a cinematic landmark, this chariot race. Uh, and I just found myself thinking like, the remake, I assume they use CGI for, for the chariot race, right? Like they can't, I'm sure they're not doing it all practical. Right, yeah. And that I, in yeah. itself makes it, not Lesser. not worse, okay. but like the very fact that like Lesser you know impressive. that everybody's in that space and everything you're seeing on screen was there uh, makes it all the more uh, amazing. And so I was very I was very impressed by Ben Hur. I like it so much more now than when I first saw it. And then uh, next week, so I guess coming up, uh, we will be talking about uh, Vincent Minnelli's Gigi, which I did not care for. Okay. Not many Spoilers. do, from my understanding. It it really is. It's it's an achievement to watch a musical with no memorable songs. <laughs> it does start off with thank heaven for little girls, which is memorable for right. being so right. horrendously creepy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a weird sentiment. Like thank heaven for little girls. Cause they get older every day. It's like, <laughs> or you can just thank God for women. Now <laughs> there's an option. All right. Um, and Scott, where can people find you and your work? Uh, on Twitter at Rail of Tomorrow, where I still tweet about movies sometimes, but it's a lot of political stuff right now. Uh, and then. Boy, that's true. 
Well, I, I'm not complaining. Hey, it's <laughs> where my mind's at. Uh, and then I've used it to, for some, uh, I've, you've found, you've posted some calls to action. I've, you know, yeah, I've tried to do a little some, bit of that in between phone calls to, uh, moral to politicians. Good. To, yeah. Call the house oversight committee. Everyone Trump is openly getting, uh, foreign officials to stay at his hotel while they're visiting DC to see him. That's corruption. <laughs> yeah. Not, not that cool. Um, anyway, uh, and then at CriterionCast.com, where I'm also kind of stepping back from some stuff, but I still wrote a review of L. I'll have a review of La La Land in a couple weeks, uh, and I'm sure some other stuff. And then on bat- bat- Battleship Pretension, of course, we're all posting AFI stuff. Mostly Battleship Pretension. That's the... Well, it will be once one. the AFI stuff starts coming. Yeah. That's right. All right. Uh, thanks at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.